That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I want to start today's show by telling you about a conversation that I had with a, a highly involved person who is involved in the world of college athletics. I, I'll just say this. I don't want to out my source, but it is a uh, high-profile consulting firm that is involved with conferences and involved with universities and really is sitting on the inside of conversations that affect media rights and schools and scheduling and all sorts of things that uh, these consulting firms do. And, and often I've made fun of the consulting firms and I've said, look at all the money that they spend and whatnot. But as I have talked with multiple consulting firms in the last six or seven months about the media rights valuations of the conferences, uh, the firms that are working with the networks themselves to help position them on you know, what conferences they should be involved in, I really have gained uh, some insight and uh, respect for what these consultants are doing. Um, but an interesting conversation came out, sprouted out of uh, one of the conversations that I had with one of the uh, one of the consultants uh, this week. Uh, and this person told me that he was amused in reading and hearing and seeing what was on Twitter and the national reports and the various media entities, amused at what he's seen in the last six or seven months as far as what has been reported nationally uh, from you know who the Pac-12 is involved with, who the Big Ten's involved with, the SEC even, and this consultant told me that only about fifty percent of what you see reported is actually accurate, and and doubled down and said it doesn't matter if it's the Pac-12 or the Big 12 or the ACC or the SEC or the Big Ten or ESPN or Amazon. This consultant who is in on these conversations told me that. He has been uh, really intrigued at that 50% batting average that the media tends to get right. And I want to drill down on that a little bit. And part of it is I want you to know when you come to this show that I'm giving you sourced, in-depth information and commentary that I'm not pulling out a left. And it's interesting sometimes when I'm interviewing guests on the show and sometimes the guests will say things that I have heard regurgitated by national media members and people on Twitter that I know not to be true, and I'll have to either correct them or steer them back in. And and sometimes I don't bring those guests back on because I go, that person really doesn't know what's going on. They're just kind of reflecting what they're hearing, and you have to be really careful. Uh, and you know that. As a consumer of media and news, you know you have to be careful in what you trust these days. We've learned that in the last six or eight or 12 years 
in watching that, regardless of whether we're talking about your health or you're talking about uh, reporting on government, schools or sports or whatnot, that, you know, there are a lot of conflicting agendas. And there are a lot of people out there that mean well that just aren't connected. So when you come to the show, I'm going to give you sourced. I'm going to give you in-depth. I'm not going to just be spitballing and throwing crap out there. And I just thought it was an interesting conversation that I had with this consultant who said it doesn't matter. Everything's about 50% correct. And, you know, the consultant talked to me, and he said he's reading me at johnconzano.com, and he said what I like is that you are only giving sourced information And it's really interesting to see the difference in what is being reported nationally versus maybe some of the people who are more well-sourced. And, you know, part of it is like today, uh, if you get, if you are subscribed, if you have a free subscription or a paid subscription at johnconzano.com, you got my Friday morning muse. And among them, uh, a couple of things that uh, I want to share with you here. And Anna has stepped into the studio. I want to get her input too, because as a journalist who, you know, has been on the news side of things. I want to drill down a little bit on that thought that the consultant had. But this morning I reported, you know, uh, obviously yesterday I reported that Boise State and the Pac-12 do not appear to be on the same page. There's been an arm's length relationship between the Pac-12 and Boise State. And I think that makes sense. Boise's media market, 500,000 television households, the fact that they compete with some of the Pac-12 schools for recruits. I just don't see the Pac-12 being super interested in Boise State. So I'm told it's arm's length contact that has uh, been had between Boise State and the Pac-12. Feels like it's a polite conversation, not a meaningful conversation. Uh, further, we've seen George Klyovkov pop up of, at SMU, and I've reported that he met with officials at San Diego State on uh, late late December and uh, talked with them while he was in San Diego for the Holiday Bowl as the Oregon Ducks were participating in that. So San Diego State and SMU are getting FaceTime. Boise State not getting a lot of FaceTime. Also, Fresno State not getting FaceTime. I'm told that Fresno State has just had intermittent talks with the Pac-12. Nothing serious. But I'm told by sources that Brett Yormark, the Big 12 Conference Commissioner, has indeed had multiple conversations with Fresno State's president. That's interesting to me. Because, you know, uh, as you know, we uh, interviewed uh, your Mark on the Kanzano and Wilner podcast this week, and he talked about wanting to get into the fourth time zone. And I know a lot of Pac-12 fans are looking at that going, is he coming after Pac-12 schools? It appears to me right now that your Mark is very interested in Fresno State. And, and I think Fresno State fits in the Big 12 conference. And I actually think Boise State and Fresno State fit better in the Big 12 than they do in the Pac-12. And I'm reporting that because... I know it to be true. I know that the university president at Fresno State has talked with Yormark multiple times, so I'm reporting that. I'm not guessing. I'm not supposing. I'm not speculating. I know they've talked. On that front, Anna, misinformation, erroneous reports, that 50% batting average that the consultant talked about, can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think, you know, that's your world, too. Yeah, I mean, I really kind of feel for all of us, the public, um, when we're trying to assess information these days, because it's like, who do you believe? Who do you trust? I feel like in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a real explosion in uh, so-called media outlets. And while I think it's great to have a diversity of voices uh, when it comes to journalism, You know, the advice that I always give uh, clients when I'm doing media consulting with them and they're considering, well, who do I do interviews with? Who should I grant an interview to? 
Like, they really need to understand the media landscape and understand who it is that they're dealing with. I'm not saying that, like, mass media doesn't have agendas, but I think you really need to, like, understand when you're dealing with bona fide journalists that have journalism ethics at heart, that their goal is to seek truth and report it and and understand that not everybody who claims to be a journalist has that in mind. I mean, the other thing to consider is people who will put information out because they're doing just single source reporting. So if you're talking about, you know, really kind of controversial issues, whether it's sports news or political news or otherwise, and you've got people who are willing to put information out literally the minute that they get it, they will just tweet it and not cite um, a source by name, not even cite a source by title or organization and not go to the trouble of trying to back up that information by reaching out to other entities to verify that information, that's really troubling because any journalist worth their salt who is putting out information that may be uh, suspect or maybe isn't you know, fully vetted yet knows that you can't just put things out there without that kind of verification and that kind of um that kind of groundwork that is needed because otherwise you are part of the problem. You're part of the problem of misinforming the public. Look, I'm going to give you sourced. I'm going to give you in-depth information and commentary. If you want to read my post from today, go to johnconzano.com, get a free subscription, get a paid subscription. We've got a great show for you. Heather Seeley Roberts, she is the only woman who leads a varsity boys basketball team in the state of Oregon. And she's got a league title in her sights tonight. She joins us next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. We've had Heather Seeley Roberts on the show before. For people who don't know, um, you know, several years ago, she became the head coach of a 60A boys varsity team and uh, is now still the only female varsity head coach. There have been a couple others that that uh, popped up in 2020, but uh, Heather Seeley Roberts joining us now, head coach Lincoln High School. Big game tonight uh, as she is coaching... Her sons, her youngest, her babies, her seniors now in high school. Heather, how you doing with that? Oh, it makes me so sad. So, hi, John. Hi. Uh, yeah, when I think about it, we're down to three regular season games left, and so it's going way too fast. It's interesting because I always tell people that my oldest daughter, who's in college, made me a better dad. And the two young ones probably don't understand, like, you know, I, I probably cling to them a little differently than, than I did with yeah. her because I realize how fast it goes. Oh, it goes so fast. And then when you're in the we had five, and so when I was in the midst of five, it just seemed like it was endless chaos, and it seemed like it would never end. And now it's just, now when I look here, it's like I can't believe we only have three more months, you know, until they're going to be out of the house. So, yeah, it's it goes way too fast. I think you do value more as you get older. And uh, just very grateful for the experiences. 7 o'clock tonight, you will play Cleveland. You're at home. A win in this game uh, puts you in the driver's seat, gives you the outright PIL championship. 
What would that mean to your team? I think it'd be super. Uh, we're super excited about that. that. Was one of our goals that we set at the beginning of the year. Um, Cleveland was the team that the only team last year in the PIL that beat us two times and then also knocked us out of the playoffs. So we have extra motivation there. And I think that where these kids have come from in the past two years, I think winning a PIL title would just be a um, it just be it just be a great indication of how hard they've worked and how much they've bought in and really solidified themselves as being a very good team. You've got a tall team. You've got three players that go six eight or taller. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you uh, it probably obviously affects the style of play, but um, you know, the two best players in the team are probably your kids, the twins. And what has that been like to uh, be mom and coach, but you've been in this role for a while? Yeah, so this is year number four, and if we count our season, we went to Utah, then it's five seasons. Um, it's it's been, a, it's been a great experience. You know, um, on the court, we separate. They call me Coach Roberts. Um, and then when we get in the car, then I'm mom. So we do a pretty good job delineating those roles. But by this point now, with them being seniors and them being with me for so long, it's like they're semi-assistant coaches, and they just help me with so much stuff. For example, you know, when we get to the gym, they just go in and start sweeping the floors, putting down the hoops, pulling out the balls. They just do a lot of things that really help me out. And I was thinking, who's going to help me out next year? I've got to adopt a couple more kids so I can have some help here. So they just that, – that part, they're just so helpful. They also know what we're doing, and they've been in our system. They've been in my system for so long and seen it ever since they were, you know, basically four days old just in the gym. So it's been uh, – it, it's going to definitely be a sad moment, but it's going to be – it's really fun been coaching them. Yeah, you've, you you know, people know Heather as uh, a high school girls coach for, uh, you know, about 15, 16 years in Oregon before moving to college and then – came back to Oregon, you wanted to coach your kids, you know, five children in the family, you've got the twins now, um, you know, but you guys did move away during the pandemic, and I'm really curious, I have so many questions for teachers and coaches, but, you know, you made that decision to allow your kids to continue to play, you went to Utah, what was that experience like for the kids? Oh, it was so great, and I'm so glad that we made the decision. Um, I was really very frustrated with what was going on here in the state and the fact that they were shutting kids out of the education system and sports, and now we're seeing all the ramifications that that has done to the kids. Um, And so we decided to go. Um, So I started looking for jobs in October, and my husband's like, no one's going to hire you in October. And I said, if they're hiring in October, they're going to be desperate. And I found a school that didn't have a coach, and so we moved out there. And those kids... Um, bought in from day one. Um, they were they accepted my boys. The whole community accepted. I'd never had so many parents thank me um, for coaching their kids, and the whole town bought in. Um, we were in Moab, Utah, and then I'd n- actually never been to Moab, and we just had a really fun time. Like when we weren't coach, basically we coached. I coached basketball. We played basketball. We did online school because we were still at school in Oregon, and then we would um, and then we would play basketball again at night. And then we did a ton of hiking. Moab has a lot of great restaurants, and we just met a lot of really neat people there. So it was a really, it was a great experience, and I think it was really fun for me, Maroni, and Malachi to have that experience together. Yeah, Maroni well. and Malachi. You know, Malachi is six eight. Maroni's six six. Mm-hmm. These are kids that can continue to play. What are their plans beyond high school? So 
immediately following high school, they're going to go on a mission for our church, the Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints, so they'll serve two years. And then right now they both have four college offers, and all the coaches are willing to wait um, for them to come back. And then um, so then they want to play basketball when they get home after that. So that's the plan. And then they'll go, they'll go somewhere and play basketball. You're, so. you're in it, and I, I have talked to a lot of elementary school teachers about that year and a half uh gap that especially kids that are in like first second third fourth grade you know they're coming back to school some of them forgot how to be in classroom a lot of them were on Mm -hmm. devices um a lot of kids Mm -hmm. they they didn't develop with reading and writing and math and what are you seeing as a coach as sort of the in the wake of that lost time in the state of oregon uh well people may not like me saying this but i i think that the development of basketball is definitely down so i'm seeing that at our youth level um i'm seeing that kind of at our lower levels i don't think the quality of oregon basketball is where it was a couple of years ago a lot of the elite kids or a lot of the kids that um parents like there were there were many families like ours that traveled to idaho and did a lot of different things to still um keep their kids in the game um but there were a lot of people that didn't and then i think especially at that youth level um so i I just think developmentally like for basketball wise they're behind the other thing i've seen is and i haven't seen it as much on the boys side but on the girls side i think they lost a lot of numbers of kids that were playing because that's kind of where you introduce kids to sports and that kind of fifth you know fourth fifth through middle school and if they don't get um, that exposure to it then by the time they come basketball is a skill game and so you've got to spend time with a basketball and if you don't um, spend time with a basketball you know then maybe they come out and they feel you know insecure they are they're not interested at that point and so I, I just think that sports wise I think it's hurt the state. Heather Seely Roberts is our guest. Uh, you know, I introduce you and I say, hey, the only female head coach of a 6A varsity team in the state of Oregon. And, uh, you know, people will say that as they're introduced. But I'm curious to see what you see in the future when it comes to coaching. The Hillsboro Hops uh, hired uh, a woman to be their manager this next season. And, and that caught my eye and caught my attention. And I thought about you. But give me an idea of what you think of the landscape. Do you see women at the lower levels in high school and in junior high starting to become head coaches of boys' teams? Yeah, I think so. In our league, um, there's uh, McDaniel has a JV coach that's a woman. I've seen one at South Salem. Um, I've seen some assistants. Jefferson um, had an assistant on the bench the other day. So I'm starting to see women um, more in the boys' ranks. And when I see someone on the lower level, I make sure I always go and talk with them and tell them, you know, to keep with it and keep encouraging it. And I think a lot of it just depends on maybe where you're more comfortable. Some people, you know, there's a lot of men that coach girls. And I um, I think that some people prefer coaching girls and some people prefer coaching boys and then other people just want to coach. Um, and then for me, it's been the, the transition. I really haven't found a big difference coaching between um, boys and girls. I mean, there, you know, as far as what I do and the things that I do with them, I just treat the kids like athletes. And I, um, and I feel like if you treat the kids like athletes, that it's, it's pretty equivalent. Did you get that acceptance in Utah? I'm curious to see, like, where you met. Because your story, uh-huh. in the state of Oregon, everybody knows your story. Everybody who sees yeah. you coming, right? But in Utah, did it raise eyebrows when you first walked out? Did they go, where's the coach? And you go, like, right here. Yeah. So there, there was definitely, well, and I was brand new, you know, so they didn't know who I was. 
They had no idea who is this woman, who are these two boys that have just all of a sudden moved into Moab. Um, yeah, it did raise some eyebrows. Um, and I had an assistant. We were kind of co-coaches because they knew I was only going to be there for a year. And so they just automatically go to him, um, you know, just kind of typical stuff that I used to see early on in my career. Um, and they, they had – and I wouldn't say, though um, – but I think what helps is then when our team was good, then a lot of times then they, you know, they kind of zip it and then they don't say as much. But it was definitely, I think, eye-opening experience for them. Now, I don't quite know how to ask this question, but I'm just so I'm just going to come right out with it. Um, I have often okay. looked at high school coaches and I have empathized with them because they're not only managing kids in a roster, they're managing parents. How yeah. do you manage parents as a coach? I feel like I've gotten better at it um, over the years um, since I've become a parent. I think that's helped. And also, now I have so much experience. Um, I've, I've set parameters about um, communication with me, when's appropriate, when's not appropriate. I've also found as I've grown older and coach, I'm way more upfront with the kids before the season starts about what their role is and their expectation so we don't have issues later on. So, for example, right now I have nine seniors, and so three of them don't play very much in games. But I was very clear with them about their roles and expectations before we started. And then I actually sat down with all the parent, all the senior parents, and I said, hey, you know, we only play five. Basketball is really hard because you only play five kids and at a time. And so I think I've become much better at um, being very clear in my expectations and then giving the kids the choice. And then if you're going to do this, I, I don't want to hear things later on. And my team this year, you know, I've, I've got, like I said, three seniors that don't play very much, and they have really bought into that role. They come every day. They know they're just as important part of the team because of what they bring to practice, and it's been great. Um, but, not, but I think you have, to be, you have to have those hard conversations up front, and then I think that helps on the back end. Um, I probably get more issues. You know, I, I get um, middle school and – um, some of our younger levels sometimes, you know, just some of the things that um, maybe are said or done at that level because um, they're not as experienced with me or they just they don't understand coming into high school what high school sports is about. And so part of that, my job is to educate them on how to, um, on how to you know, how to, edu- how to interact with coaches. But also it helps when you win. Yeah, no you know, kidding. You yeah, win, if you're not getting the success, everybody's going, does yeah. this coach know what they're doing? Um, there's yeah, a little and bit. Then that's when you get lots of complaints. There, there's lots a, there's some public service in this because I think we have some parents who are listening who have kids who are in third and fourth and fifth grade who mm-hmm. don't know what's in front of them. What advice do you give to mm-hmm. them? How do you coach parents to avoid burnout? What advice? So, first of all, get your kids. I think they should play lots of sports when they're young. So don't just specialize in one sport. I think it can be really hard on a body. When you are there, what you say to your kids um, when they're not on court is really um, important. So I can't tell you how many times, and I'm going to put a plug out here for referees, I can't tell you how many times I've heard a young kid say, oh, the referee blew a game for us. I'm like, yeah, you're 10. The referee did not blow a game for you. And so, you know, those (laughs) kind of things because – you need to teach your, you know, your kid when you when you blame someone else for your loss, you're taking the power away from yourself, and and then that's disempowering kids. I think then also parents have to try really hard to take a back seat. If they're not going to step up and coach their kids' youth team, then they better zip it 
you know, if someone is spending the time to help them coach, um, to help coach their kids and screaming at kids and screaming at the coach. You want kids to, one, learn the game and, two, have fun. And when people are yelling and screaming, to me, that's not fun. And then the last thing I would say is, play man defense. Don't stick them in a zone when they're 10 years old because then you're not teaching them anything. I love that. Heather Seely Roberts is our guest. Lincoln High School head varsity coach. 7 o'clock tonight, they'll play Cleveland PIL Championship uh, at stake here. And then beyond that, uh, you have a goal, state championship? Uh, have you guys talked about that? Or do you do, like Chip Kelly, it's a uh, faceless opponent next game? Um, yeah. No, nope. I'm I'm a beaver, so no, we don't do chip. But, um, <laughs> I do like I do like it. I do like the win the day concept. But we are our goal is to win the state title, and we know that there are some teams there that also have that same goal. And you know, obviously West Lynn is the favorite team, um, but we feel like we can play with anyone, and that's what we want to do is give ourselves that opportunity. But that being said, we still got two playoff games, you know, to get there. So we're we're not looking ahead. Every day we focus on this is our end goal, and are we doing what we need to do today to get to that end goal? And so, you know, we don't, we don't look ahead, um, but we try to we use that as motivation to help us get where we want to be. It's really interesting because I came away after kind of peeking at the Les Schwab Invitational and seeing some of the highly touted club-style teams that mm-hmm. that showed up get beat by yeah. West Lynn, and, and you know, I, I thought it was great for the region. Did you have any yeah. takeaways from that tournament? Did it say anything about the upper levels of high school basketball in Oregon or – you know, does it say anything about kind of the state of things, Bronny James and the circus around that? Oh, wow. Well, first of all, it was so fun being in the tournament. We, I've never been in it, um, and Lincoln hasn't been in it since, I think, 2011. So we just loved the whole experience. Um, the Bronny James show was a spectacle. And so at one time, um, we were actually standing in the hallway when they came in. And so one of my kids pulled out their phone, and the biggest security guard came over and, like, just stared him down. I'm like, put your phone away, put your phone away. <laughs> and, um, and I've just never seen a game where the security guard was sitting there staring at us the whole time because they had one right behind him. So that whole experience was really fun. But I thought West Lynn, it was such – I thought that was awesome that they were winning the games, you know, that they won – they beat these nationally ranked teams. And so now you see West Lynn is ranked. Um, you know, Bishop Gorman obviously beat us, you know, pretty well. But we competed with them for a while, and it was it was a fun experience to be able to see that. And I think what you see there is more maybe the AAU – style against a high school, you know, a system, you know, where, where kids are bought into a school and a community and so that they probably had more time together. And so it's just a contrasting of styles. But I, I thought Oregon, I thought, you know, with Westland, we definitely represented really well. Yeah, that's interesting you point that out because I think I've talked to college coaches and you've coached in college where the mid-majors mm-hmm. who had juniors and seniors in the NCAA tournament were absolutely clobbering the programs that had the one and dones for you know right out of the gates. Like you saw Butler mm-hmm. get to the Final Four, and and it it was kind of interesting to see that dynamic play out. And I think I was thinking about that during the Les Schwab. Like how many of these kids on some of these highly ranked teams are for their second or third or fourth high school? Yeah, I would agree. And so that's where I think that's I think that's really um, I, I think that's really different when you were talking about that. Now you just think about the whole transfer portal and how that's changed um, so many college teams as well. 
because there's so much more uh, rotation through there, you know, rather than those uh, schools that are established and building a team. And that's what I like. That's why I actually left the college. I mean, I, I really liked my college experience, but what I like about coaching is that process of building a team and um, seeing the kids come together and then build something greater than what they could do individually. And I think that's the really, for me, the really rewarding part of coaching. Coach, I know you've got three regular season games, including tonight. You've got the playoffs. Will you continue to coach high school basketball beyond this season? Have you thought about that? Will you go to college? Uh, you have a plan. Well, that is probably the most asked question to myself. Um, everyone asks me that question. So right now the plan is to come back to Lincoln, and so that's what we're planning. But, you know, we always evaluate at the end of the year. But I'm, I'm coaching like I'm coming back next year, and my boys are going to be gone for two years, and so I'll need something to do besides just hang at home with my husband and all his cats. That he has around the <laughs> there it is. That's why yeah. you come to this show. Uh, thank you, Heather. I appreciate you giving us your time, and good luck tonight. Uh, PIL championship hanging in the balance. Thanks for giving us your time. Well, and thank you, and thanks for your articles. I like reading the bald-faced truth. Thank I you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, okay. Love that interview. Uh, Lincoln at home tonight against Cleveland if you are a area basketball fan. PIL championship hanging in the balance. A lot of great advice in that interview. Love that she's subscribed. You want to read? You can read me exclusively now at johnconzano.com. That's where you find me. Leave it here. You got the bald-faced truth on this great Friday. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. I thought Heather Seeley Roberts said something really interesting in that, in that last segment, and... I want to I want to double down on it just a little bit. If you missed the interview with the Lincoln High School coach, uh, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it. But you know, she's an educator, she's a teacher, she's a mom, she's a varsity high school basketball coach in the state of Oregon. Only the third woman all time to coach a high school varsity team in the state of Oregon at that level, six A level. But um, she's talking a little bit about how the state of Oregon fell behind. And look, I don't want to make this a masking, pro-masking, anti-masking. We all, I, I think everyone can agree now, looking back on the pandemic, that it sucked, that people got sick, some people died. Uh, it was horrible. It was horrible for kids who were going, were locked out of schools. It was horrible for kids who later had to mask, and athletes who who were forced to wear masks while they were trying to compete on the courts. It just, it wasn't good for anybody. But she talked about the overall development of athletes in the state and she gave great advice and i and look i think elementary school teachers i i know we have a first grader and we have a third grader in our household uh anna volunteers in the classrooms i talk to the teachers frequently um the teachers are struggling and and, and it's not one or two cases i think teachers in general are struggling and facing challenges that they've never before faced they have never before had, especially in the elementary school levels, had classes and kids miss school and essentially have a gap of like a year, year and a half where they didn't get the discipline, uh, you know, the ability to go into a classroom and sit down. That's not even to mention the academic growth that was lost for kids who are struggling with reading, writing and arithmetic now. And, And we're seeing that and behavioral problems that are happening. And Frankly, there were just a lot of kids who had parents who, who you know, were busy working from home. And even though the kids were doing online school from home, 
a lot of that uh, resembled being on devices. And then to keep the kids busy, a lot of the kids ended up on kids YouTube and on devices. And, and I'm not here to judge anybody. I'm just saying that's what happened. And I think teachers right now are dealing with, you know, I, there was a book written about it already about that lost year and really is more than a year. And from an athletic standpoint, I'm kind of wondering too, like, think about all of us. Like, you know, did you get out of your routine and your habit during the pandemic? I sure did. Like, I had a spell where I was locked into a new routine. It was healthy, whatnot. And then I suddenly found myself going, you know, uh, you're isolated. You're at home. I was doing the show from home. We wasn't really interacting with people. And, and I was like, man, I'm out of routine. I look back now and I go, there were probably a lot of unhealthy habits that came out of the pandemic. And a lot of people that were less active, more sedentary, weren't getting into the gym, weren't getting that mental health. I mean, hell, uh, I've talked to uh, counselors and therapists who say that coming out of the pandemic, they their calendars were booked solid in a way that they had never seen before. There were more people in need of mental health assistance than maybe at any other point in history in, in our country. And so... I do think I have a lot of empathy for teachers who are in classrooms, and but I'm super interested too in what happened developmentally with athletes in our state, young athletes in particular who were playing different sports and maybe didn't get to play the sport. Their season got canceled and lost that teamwork and the camaraderie and the connection to the world that they had previously, or maybe frankly just lost a year of development and skill and. I also think, like, you know, there was a lot of gold in that interview because she's, she comes at the problems of the world, Heather Seely Roberts does, from a variety of angles. For example, you know, she's a mom. She has two kids on the team. She is a coach. She's coaching the team. She's an educator. She's been in uh, college and high school programs uh, for most of her adult life, coaching and teaching. And so I think she has that perspective, and I love what she said I don't know if you caught it. There was a nugget in there where she talked about having your kids not specialize in a single sport. We're trying to be super mindful of that with our six-year-old and our eight-year-old, in part because I watched the older daughter in our family um, who probably could have played a multitude of sports. She loved to run. She was involved with track and field growing up and CYO track and field and such, but she ended up saying, you know, I have to dedicate and devote all of my energy and my time to volleyball. And she really got into that world. And it was healthy. I mean, you look around, there were some positive influences in club volleyball. And I'm sure there are in club soccer and baseball and football as well. But, uh, you know, Heather Seeley Roberts talked about the physical toll that it takes on a body when you are playing only one sport. I think it's really interesting, in particular with shoulders and knees and ankles in volleyball. And I'm sure you see it with elbows and shoulders in baseball. And I'm sure you see a variety of other overuse injuries in different sports. But it's important to remember what her overall message was, that be a well-rounded athlete. You know, let, let uh, from a kid's standpoint, let that be experience different kinds of stresses, different kinds of muscles used, different movements in different sports. I think that's all super valuable stuff. And it's stuff, frankly, that the rest of us can apply to our regular lives. Like, I know some people who are just diehard runners. They run all the time, and they complain about their hips and their knees and their ankles, and I and I say, you know, go see my friends at Reflex. They'll take care of you. But the other thing they could do is, you know, you need strength training. You need flexibility. Uh, it, it wouldn't be bad for, you know, the diehard basketball player to 
to uh, work on running and the the runners to be playing uh, other sports. You know, pickleball has certainly you know taken off and become a big thing, especially among older uh, citizens. But uh, I, I digress. Like, I just think there was a lot of gold in that interview. Like, part of the reason that we do this show is I want to be newsy. I want to be talking about the news and the news of the day and what's relevant and what's interesting. You know, and obviously my background as a journalist helps in it with the content of this show. But part of it, too, is I feel like there's a public service element to the show. Like, there are a lot of parents who are listening. There are coaches that are listening. There are athletes that are listening. And, and you know, I think that we have the ability here on this show to bring in coaches, bring in athletes, uh, bring in people who have lived and seen some stuff in their lifetime and in the world and allow them to kind of impart their wisdom on us. And in, in part, that's why today's show, and I told you in the opening segment, we're going to be fast moving. We're going to have a lot of interviews on the show. Every once in a while, I just go, look, I have all of these interviews that I want to do, and I never really find the right show to fit them into. Like, you know, Heather Seeley Roberts is a great example of that. And and later in the program, Marshall Cho, another uh, high school, well-known high school basketball coach in the state, uh, great example of that. But I, I look at those kinds of interviews, and I go, okay, where do I put them? Doesn't work during college football season. Doesn't quite fit if the, unless there's some news on the high school front. Maybe the Les Schwab Invitational Tournament or when Bronny's in town, we can do an interview like that. But I just said, you know, I made my mind up this week. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to put those interviews on Friday. And you're going to hear me interview a whole bunch of people on today's show. And there is part of it that's newsworthy. And there's part of it that's interesting and entertaining. But I also think there's a public service element here that we cannot miss. All right, leave it here. Coming up, uh, I'll give you your big splash. It's the one thing you need to know. Later in the program, you'll hear from another uh, influential coach in the state of Oregon. Stay tuned. You got the BFT on this great Friday. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. When I was a kid growing up, uh, I used to get up on uh, Sunday mornings and I would uh, rush to the VCR in the, my parents' living room. VCR, um, for uh, kids who are just tuning in, uh, we used to have to put a tape in the VCR to play a movie. <laughs> we used to, there was no DVDs. There was no, you don't know what a DVD is? Okay, uh, let me back up even further. No, seriously, uh, I used to rush to my parents' VCR in the living room, and and uh, I would be uh, really nervous about whether or not the VCR actually recorded the show that I had set it to record the night before. No, not the George Michael Sports Machine. That came after the show that I would set the VCR to record on Saturday nights at my parents' house, because on Saturday night at 11.30, Saturday Night Live came on, on the NBC affiliate. And I would leave it on, and I would record it, and I would spend Sunday morning before the football came on, or before we went to church as a family, I would spend a few minutes checking to see if I got it. You know, the, in 1985, the Chicago Bears joined Saturday Night Live for an episode. And, you know, SNL was a thing. And, you know, going back to Dennis Miller and Dana Carvey and... Even uh, earlier episodes before that and characters before that, Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray. And, I mean, Saturday Night Live had it, man. It was the show. Chris Farley, of course, um, and others. But I, uh, 
I always would get up and then I would watch that show and then, uh, you know, I always had it in the bank, right? I had the same video cassette that I would just tape over and over each episode. And so that sort of sets up today's big splash because I love it when sports characters get to host Saturday Night Live. Travis Kelsey, tight end, Kansas City Chiefs, made an appearance on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, and that is the subject of our big splash. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Brought to you by the Exogen Twice Daily Thermometer. Kelsey made the announcement with Fallon and broke the news himself. Here's how it sounded. We have a big announcement that we're going to announce here on the show tonight. I'm very excited about this. You're going to be back in our building in a few weeks. Can you say why you're coming yeah, back? Yeah, for sure. I mean, growing up, um, I was a huge, like, Farley, uh, Farrell, Fallon um, <laughs> kind of guy growing up. And, um, yeah, I used to watch Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live with my mother. And um, it's, a, it's an absolute honor and a, and a privilege to be uh, hosting SNL March 4th. <laughs> So nervous for that. Oh my god. You are gonna be so good. I was talking to Lauren today. I'm like, oh, he's so charming and he can sing and he's fun and it's so good. You think that about me? I do. <laughs> yeah. I know, yeah, yeah. I do. I know. I, I was like, yeah, I do. Oh, you're I, it, it's amazing. But it, Kelsey Ballerini is a musical guest. Yes. So that's yes. it's gonna be a hot show. Congratulations Thank on that. Thank you very much. NBC is doing a great job there of cross-promoting their properties uh, they uh, you know take Travis Kelsey a sports figure uh, who's fresh off a Super Bowl win and throw him on the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon while promoting a Saturday Night Live appearance that's coming up in a couple of weeks I think it's a brilliant thing it's a brilliant move by NBC uh, I think it's really smart by Travis Kelsey and his people to get him exposure to a bunch of fans and a bunch of viewers who probably uh, didn't know who he was a couple of years ago or even a couple of weeks ago but it gives uh, an opportunity for everybody to win. I think it's really, really smart. It also gets me thinking about sports stars who have hosted Saturday Night Live over the years. Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley hosted four times, Tom Brady, LeBron James, Peyton Manning, Eli Manning. They've all done it. Fran Tarkenton, O.J. Simpson, Bill Russell, John Madden, Bob Euchre. Uh, as you look back in sports history, it's not unusual to see Saturday Night Live uh, Pluck somebody who's popular and has the other element that Saturday Night Live needs, a little personality. That's what it got me thinking about athletes who I'd like to see host Saturday Night Live. Because when you go, uh, you know, and you find, like, who are the world's most popular athletes, they're not always people you'd love to see on the show. Like, for example, Kevin Durant, I think, would not be great on Saturday Night Live. He is, uh, you know, when when I hear him interviewed or I see him interviewed. He's not dynamic in that way, and I don't know if he's got that personality, but I'd love to see Draymond Green or Steph Curry hosting Saturday Night Live. Hell, I'd love to see Damian Lillard on Saturday Night Live host as the host. Um, I also think, like, when you look around sports, um, Serena Williams comes to mind. I think she'd be a fantastic host, and I also think, like, you know, it's really smart of Saturday Night Live because if you, if you really go back to the heyday of Saturday Night Live, and I was talking about that VCR that I used to set in my parents' living room. Clock always flashing midnight, 12 a.m., 12 a.m. Uh, but that VCR, I would uh, have to set the clock in order to set the timer. 
and then I would come in and you know uh, just be hopeful that it that it recorded as it should have recorded, uh, so that I could sleep like a you know a normal twelve uh, year old thirteen year old kid. But um, the the hosts and the and the personalities of Saturday Night Live over in that era and even before that era, epic, right? Like. You had Chris Farley, David Spade, Dana Carvey, Dennis Miller, Phil Hartman, uh, all during that era when I was kind of the sweet spot of when I was watching. And even before that, you talk about, uh, you know, actors like Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and uh, Belushi. And, you know, you could go back and, and, you know, Saturday Night Live was this launching pad into fame. Now, there have been some good... Uh, talented people who have come through there recently. Bill Hader comes to mind. You know, if we're all being real, I mean, I think there's been a saturation of, uh, the you know, the marketplace in entertainment and comedians now using social media and Netflix and HBO and Showtime to get their specials. They don't have to come through Saturday Night Live, which, you know, got its uh, start in uh, 1975. But, yeah, like Tina Fey, who else? Will Ferrell. Come on, Eddie Murphy. I forgot Eddie Murphy. Mike Myers, Chris Rock, uh, you know Adam Sandler. I, I just think when you look back in the history of Saturday Night Live, the stars of that era compared to now when you turn the show on, it's lost something. It's lost its fastball, whatever. I think Lorne Michaels is doing a smart thing here, uh, calling upon a uh, Super Bowl star and a personality, more importantly, from the Kansas City Chiefs, who will draw an audience from the sports world that SNL probably isn't capturing currently. All right, coming up, uh, we have so much more ahead on the show today. Uh, we will talk next with John Schaefer. Who is he? Well, he's a afternoon drive radio show host in San Diego. And Schaefer's going to join us for a few minutes to talk about what San Diego really brings to the table when it comes to the Pac-12 conference. Stay tuned for that. Plus... We've got Marshall Cho, Lake Oswego High School basketball coach later in the program. He thinks outside the box. We're going to dive deep on what it is uh, to uh, coach kids in today's world. What are his rules when it comes to cell phones? What are his rules when it comes to developing players and, and trying to develop the total player, not just the athlete? You're developing a person if you are a coach. Up next, though, first, more on Pac-12 expansion. Yesterday, we talked a lot about SMU, and I gave you the news that Boise State, not a likely expansion target for the Pac-12. We talked San Diego State coming up next. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Conference obviously looking at expansion. We've been talking all around it and about it, and I wanted to bring on John Schaefer, who hosts an afternoon drive show in San Diego on 760 Sports 760. Uh, also does a pre and halftime and post game show for San Diego State. John, thanks for making time for us. John, I appreciate your time. I've, been, I've enjoyed the work you've been doing. Uh, your work, 
the work you do with John Mooney, so I appreciate you having me. Yeah, and I, I just kind of want to talk about that because San Diego State is a super interesting candidate here, and I think one of the stronger candidates. And I just want to take the temperature. You know, you're on campus, you're around the games. What do you see now happening at San Diego State? I think San Diego State ultimately is the perfect fit for the Pac-12. I really do believe that. I just think San Diego as a city has changed so much in the last decade. I think with the NFL departing San Diego, um, there's really a ton of room for San Diego State. There's a lot of goodwill towards university. I mean, the, the Chargers could not get a stadium built in the city because they couldn't get a public initiative passed. And, and San Diego State University was able to do that. Right? They had more than 50% of the voters in the city allow them to purchase land that is where Snapdragon Stadium is sitting right now. So there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of goodwill and support for San Diego State, and they, they've been successful in football and men's basketball for a long, long time. And I, I think it's one of the, the really good stories that people don't talk about. I mean, this is the winningest program in FCS in football and men's basketball since the start of the 2009-2010 basketball season in the country. Better than Ohio State, better than anyone in the in the Pac-12, so they've won. They've had academic success. The university continues to grow. They've got that land. They've got Snapdragon Stadium. They're in Southern California, which is a crazy recruiting hotbed. So for me, it just makes too much sense. And I think there's a lot of excitement in San Diego. And I think San Diego State to the Pac-12 would mean a ton for the city. Give me an idea, like how soon after UCLA and USC announced that they're leaving for the Big Ten. Does your phone start ringing? Your show, your afternoon drive show, how soon do you start talking about the possibilities? So when that news broke, and I remember vividly, I mean, literally at 3 p.m. when I came on the air, the you know the take was San Diego State has a very good chance of being in a better lot from a conference perspective moving forward. And I don't know everything that's going to transpire over the next you know week, month, year, or even longer, but you just kind of started to think about think it through, and it just makes too much sense. You know, that's what I say about San Diego State a lot. It just makes too much sense, and I think the Pac-12 recognizes it. I think the Big 12 recognizes it. I, I think it's, it's, it's really a fit because of so many reasons that we kind of discussed there, because of, but the geographic footprint for me is so significant, and again, the successes that they're having. But yeah, it, it's something, the second I saw the tweet from John Wilner about SC and UCLA, my first thought was, this is going to change San Diego State potentially for forever. And I still feel that way, you know, a handful of months later. Snapdragon Stadium and then the academic profile of San Diego State. You know, I've, I've dipped into a little bit of that and what San Diego State has done in the last five to ten years to kind of position itself for this. Um, how different is that university now than maybe when, you know, Marshall Falk was there? You go back to the Dan McGuire era at quarterback. I think a lot has changed. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, San Diego State's got a, a, a really fascinating football history, but it's very easy to argue that the last 10 years of San Diego State football are the brightest in the history of the program since Don Coriel, right, who had an amazing run in the 1970s, which is going back a half century. But you look at what Brady Oak and Rocky Long have done, and they've really built a strong foundation. I mean, they've won 10-plus games, something like five of the last eight years. They've won Mountain West Championship. They've had Heisman finalists, top five and top ten finishers, and Donnell Pumphrey and Rashad Penny. I mean, that's in recent history in the last six or seven years. Snapdragon Stadium is a brilliant facility. I mean, it's a gorgeous college football stadium. 
Uh, it's what college football stadiums in the future will look like. Smaller in terms of seating, but revenue-producing with suites, the ability to be used 365 days a year, amenities, right? I mean, it has all the things that I think a lot of the universities wish they would have in their football stadiums. So they've got a revenue-producing stadium, which I think is really advantageous. They have recent football success. You've got an amazing football city from a prep perspective. So, you know, everything's just coming along. And I think that I think the student body is really supportive. I mean, the student body, when I saw it at Snapdragon Stadium last year, was really, really good. What we see at the AF Arena with San Diego State basketball is truly incredible. So I think it's just all moving in the right direction. And if they get that opportunity, I really – I don't see a difference for me, John, between a TCU a decade ago, a Utah – a decade ago, and what San Diego State is capable of in the future. I don't see how those universities have any inherent advantages that are greater than San Diego State moving forward. John Schaefer, our guest, uh, hosts a afternoon drive show in San Diego on San Diego's 60 AM. Also does uh, pre-post and uh, halftime for San Diego State, as well as some Padres uh, work Give me an idea. Like, the Padres are a big deal. I've got friends who grew up in the area. They're diehard Padres fans. They've kind of shifted from the Chargers all in on the Padres. You know, and on your show, how much San Diego State are you guys talking relative to maybe the Chargers or or the Padres even? We talk a ton of San Diego State. Um, I think it's undercovered in the market. Um, I felt that for years and years and years. Um, I still feel that way today. I think it's it remains a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of an untapped resource, but I think there's a lot of interest in it, and I see it, um, whether it's in numbers or in activity. I mean, we, we basically, I spend, I, it's all local for what we do. I mean, it's all Padres, it's all San Diego State. That's 99% of the stuff we talk about this time of the year. I'm talking a lot of San Diego State basketball. These are the 21 and 5, and they go to the NCAA tournament. Uh, we talked a lot of San Diego State football in the fall. We talked a ton of Padres. This is a Padres market first right now. And I think San Diego State, with an invite to a Pac-12 or a Big 12, puts themselves in position to be topical year-round like the Padres. Of course, the Padres play professional baseball. College football is a little different. This is a huge city, right? This isn't Eugene. This isn't State College or Ann Arbor. So it's a little bit of a different Dynamic, but certainly the Padres have captured the hearts and minds of San Diego these last couple of years. Ownership has invested, but I think San Diego State again winning this public vote, getting Snap Stadium built with what's potentially on the horizon. I think that there's a lot there for San Diego State to really capitalize on and take advantage of, and I think they have a market that wants it to happen because again, in a in a post NFL San Diego, this city is very receptive see what San Diego State is doing and will be doing moving forward. Boise State, Fresno State, there was some disappointment, I think, when George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, showed up at SMU uh, a week ago or so and was very visible. Uh, the other, Those other schools I mentioned, some of the fans there said, oh gosh, we're not going to get in. They're going to take SMU and, and somebody else. How was that SMU visit received in, in your territory? I think it was received well because I think once you saw the Pac-12 commissioner publicly on campus of an expansion target, if you put two and two together, you know, A, why is he doing that? And B, if he's doing it at SMU, then clearly he's already had those conversations at San Diego State. And as the hours and days evolved, and I think, 
you know, you've reported on it, others have as well. San Diego State reportedly already has met the George Klyoff Cough. So I, I think it is seen as a positive step in that, you know, in that push towards expansion. And I don't know if it's inevitable or not. You know, I, I really don't. You know, I don't have those, those sources. But I do know that everything that San Diego State has done, I mean, from a facility perspective, from a winning perspective, academically, the growth of this campus, I mean, they envision themselves in a Power Five league. I mean, they see their future in the Power Five, right, in, in the haves as opposed to the have-nots. And for me, it's a, it's a matter of time. Without knowing the particulars and the specifics, I think it's a matter of time. You know, the SMU thing is interesting. I think there's a lot of issues with SMU similar to San Diego State. I think there's something to be said for the time zone in the recruiting footprint of Texas. Um, but everything you can say about SMU, of course, well, I think there's just as much of the advantage, obviously, in San Diego because you're talking about Southern California. Why would you leave it? to, you know, the Big 12 or solely to the Big 10 now with USC and UCLA. And you see how valuable this area is recruiting in the Pac-12. This is uh, it's going to be really interesting. I, I do think we're going to get some news here in the next few weeks. I think the conference's media rights deals are being wrapped up. Everybody's kind of gone underground here, John. But, um, you know, give me an idea. You know, J.D. Wicker, the athletic director, you know, the university president, if the Pac-12 comes to San Diego State and says, look, uh, you can come into this conference, but you're going to come in at a reduced distribution in the first couple of years, is is that something you think San Diego State would be open to? Or do they feel like they've got leverage here, that they will end up in the Pac-12, they've got Southern California, they, there's some inherent advantages for sure? It's a, it's a good question, John, and I can't speak to everything for, for J.D. Wicker, and I think J.D. and Adele Delatore, I think they really position the university well for whatever comes their way. And I know J.D. was pointed by Dennis Dodd, I want to say, at CBS Sports, saying that, you know, he believes San Diego State has put themselves in a position where you'd want them to get a full share, um, that they're worthy of it, and it would be advantageous for the league. I mean, the way I look at it from the outside, John, is that wouldn't you want all of the members of your league to be at a full share as quickly as possible because doesn't strengthen the overall league. Now, again, it might cut into revenue for some of these other schools immediately, but I would say the strongest leagues are the leagues that are balanced off the bottom. I think what, you know, one of the big 12 you know, calling cards or plays that they use is they strength kind of in numbers, not that it's top-heavy, not that they have these huge marquee brands like Oregon or Michigan or Ohio State, but they're balanced. And I think that balance has serve them well. So I would think from the Pac-12's perspective or even the Big 12's perspective, if you're adding an institution like San Diego State, you want them to be in a position where they can benefit the other institutions. And I think financially that's why you want these schools like San Diego State or even SMU as whole as possible, as quickly as possible. Because I think it benefits not just those schools, but the league in general. You've got your finger on the pulse of the Padres. My baseball fans are going to kill me if I don't ask you, but what is this season going to be like? Is is this a, a step-forward season for the Padres? It's the most anticipated season in the franchise. I mean, that's, that's what everyone says. That's what, and they've never sold more season tickets. And they have a wait list for Padres season tickets. I mean, it's truly totally incredible. They've got 25,000 season ticket holders. And they've got, you know, Manny Machado and Juan Soto and Xander Bogart and Fernando Tatis Jr. It's truly an incredible roster. Expectations are sky high. I mean, I don't know if it's fully World Series or bust, but it's pretty close. The city is starved for a champion. Whether it's 
the San Diego Padres for the Aztecs basketball team to make a run in the NCAA tournament for San Diego State football to get to a power league. But, I mean, San Diego is rockful arms around the Padres. They've been successful here recently. It's been a problem with their owner expanding, like, very few owners in the sport. So uh, I think the, the expectations here will go win the NLS and go get to a World Series. So it's easier said than done. But, I mean, it's February, and it's, it's fever pit stuff when it comes to Padres here. I saw Rob Manfred's comments that about, you know, the Padres losing money. And, and and always, they're always going to, you know, he's obviously working on behalf of the owners. They're always going to plead poverty. Um, what's he trying to say? What's he signaling by, by saying, hey, look, even the Padres are going to lose money here? I think he's speaking to your point, John, on behalf of, again, he's like the bidding of the owners. And if you think about it, the 30 owners, the majority of them might be small market owners. So when a fellow, quote-unquote, small market owner is bucking the trend, you know, is that good for Rob Manfred's business? I mean, because here's the problem. Peter Sander, he's said this now for a couple of years, the owner of the Padres, he's almost become enemy number one of small market owners because fans of teams in Kansas City and in, you know, Baltimore and wherever are saying, well, hold on, if they can do it in San Diego, why can't we do it here? So I think Rob Manfred should really change the messages and say, you know what, what Peter Sander's doing and investing it's really a model that other franchises we hope will follow moving forward. Because if they can do it in San Diego, we feel as if they can do it in a majority of the market. So I was, I was taken aback by it. There was a lot of flack uh, from Padres fans here over the last 24, 48 hours when he said it. But Padres fans are so amazing. Ownership matters, right? I mean, so the Chargers run by the Spanishers, and, you know, they're gone. But you got Peter Seidler here in San Diego. He's got a 270 plus million. He's got a top three or top five payroll. And San Diegans believe this is a team that can bring a World Series to this city. So San Diegans are thrilled, and I personally think the commissioner's off base. John Schaefer, I appreciate you. Thanks for giving us your time, and uh, hopefully see you down the road, my friend. I look forward to it, John. Thank you. Will it be SMU, San Diego State? Will the Pac-12 stay at 10? Will they move to 12? Uh, coming up, uh, I spoke with Brett Yormark, the Big 12 Conference Commissioner, this week, and it got me thinking about two other Power 5 Conference Commissioners, Greg Sankey and George Klyovkov, the SEC and the Pac-12, respectively. I'll unpack all of that coming up. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. The interview that John Wilner and I did with the Big 12 Commissioner Brett Yormark earlier in this week, it just went bananas uh, on Wednesday and Thursday. And even this morning, I looked at the numbers and it was just uh, the people listening to that podcast, just phenomenal amount of people and a lot of dissemination, a lot of chatter about what Brett Yormark said on that podcast sort of dominated the news cycle of uh, of the last couple of days when it comes to people who are interested in college football. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised by that. But there were a couple of key parts of that interview that we haven't unpacked yet on this show, and I want to talk a little bit about it. Um, I've talked about the ecosystem of college athletics and how important that is to me, and I, I think it's important to a lot of people. But I, Brady Hormark, as I went back and listened to the interview, I, I didn't catch this the first time. But this exchange that I'm going to play here, it's just a couple of minutes long, 
where I ask your mark essentially, you know, what is the role of a Power Five conference commissioner? What's the role of the Big Twelve in in the overall picture? What's the from the twenty thousand foot view? What should these Power Five conference commissioners be doing? And how does that fit into the larger mission of higher education? And you're going to hear Wilner kind of ask the follow-up question. I think it's the funniest part of the interview. It's not a particularly funny interview. Like, he's not a comedian. But I think it's it's kind of a funny, not ha-ha funny, but interesting funny, peculiar funny part of this interview with Brett Yormark, the, the Big 12 commissioner. And again, if you want the whole interview... Um, you can find it. Uh, it's the Conzano, Conzano and Wilner, the podcast is what it's called on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. But I asked Brett Yormark, the Big 12 Conference Commissioner, what his role is, what's the role of the Big 12, how does that fit into the mission of college athletics, meaning that part of college athletics is the fact that it's a college. Yeah, I, and that's, that's a great question. I think as it relates to the industry, it's incumbent upon the the power five and the power five commissioners to take a leadership role in what's good for the industry and partner with the NCAA and make sure there's fluid direction. And obviously there's challenges out there right now, but the question is, you know, how do we respond to those challenges? And we look forward to, you know, working with governor Baker on how to resolve some of those challenges uh, in the future, but we need to play a significant role uh, in the future landscape of um, collegiate athletics. And I can tell you that, uh, all the Power Five commissioners uh, are committed to that, right? And working, you're working together candidly. Your whole approach makes sense on a lot of levels to me, except for the fact that it seems to run counter to the general tenor of higher education, right? I mean, universities and university presidents are very conservative. College football has been, you know, entrenched in its ways for, you know, 100 years. I mean, Notre Dame has as many votes in the CFP as the SEC does, right? How have your presidents responded or moved with you to the approach you're taking, you know, to aggressively pursue all these different uh, all these different, you know, goals? Well, I mean, I think they've been very much aligned with me. Um, you know, I, I presented my vision for the future during the interview process. And ultimately, I was selected. And I think at the end of the day, the student-athlete experience, student-athlete wellness, um, all the things that you hear about are, are still a priority or will always be a priority. Um, but while that's a priority, we can also diversify, you know, how we go, how we operate and, and manage the business and grow revenue and create value and do do some of the things that I'm doing um, all within the confines and guidelines of what's most important. And obviously, our member institutions are important. Our student athletes are important. And, and you know, last night, in fact, I was in Stillwater. Uh, meeting with student athletes and and discussing you know life and their journey um, and their experience on campus. Uh, then I met with donors and and discussed you know a little bit more about the the business side and how we're creating value for the Big Twelve uh, and talked a little bit about our TV deal and how we're diversifying revenue and creating new IP and amplifying our championship. Um, experiences, not only for our fans, but for our student athletes. So 
Um, you know, we're looking at this from a lens that's very well-rounded, but with always, but always from the lens of what's most important. And um, that hasn't changed since I've been here. Okay, I want to stop him right there because he says since I've, I've been here, he's only been on the job for six months. It's not like this is some overarching mission that the Big 12 is now speaking to and talking about. I think it's a real problem right now that college athletics is facing. And the NCAA has a new president. They hired uh, essentially a politician to come in and be their new president, a uh, former state governor. And they're going to, I think, pursue uh, legislation. I think they're going to pursue better partnerships uh, and try to get some congressional intervention when it comes to name image likeness and you know whether it should become employees and all of that stuff. But they have bigger questions that they have to face. And and we tried to make your mark face those questions in, in that little segment, right? Basically calling upon him to kind of flesh out where the Big 12 Conference mission and Brett Yormark's job as the commissioner of the Big 12, all in line with the overall mission of college athletics and, and higher education. Because, it, it you know, Wilner's right when he asks that question. He says, you know, basically it flies in the face of higher education. It does. Because if... You know, if you are hiring conference commissioners who come from the college athletics world, former athletic directors, that's, you know, that's what it used to be. Football coach became the athletic director. Conference commissioner was a former athletic director. You know, everybody understood what what campus life was like. But in this latest cycle of hiring, you know, the Big 12 Conference hired a guy who was the CEO of the Brooklyn Nets and the head of Jay-Z's Rock Nation to lead the Big 12. That guy didn't have his boots on campus. He, he wasn't walking. He didn't see students. He didn't sort of understand the spirit of what a college campus is, what it means to be part of the campus community. No, he's interested in revenue streams. He's interested in making money, TV deals, sponsorships, creating intellectual property, uh, you know, selling their data. Uh, you know, he's looking at it from a business standpoint because they have hired a salesperson from the business world. And that's not a knock on your mark. If you're a Big 12 fan, don't at me. It It's just what it is. That's where the Big 12 has sort of turned. They've pivoted, hey, we need to go to somebody who has real-world experience with sponsorships and negotiating deals. And they got a salesperson. The Pac-12 did the same damn thing, just in a different way. George Klyovkov and even Larry Scott before him, these were not campus people. Klyovkov rode. Larry Scott was a tennis player, Harvard-educated tennis player. Okay, those that's not football. That's not basketball. And I've criticized Larry Scott. I think one of the big problems of his tenure as the Pac-12 commissioner was that he did not understand football and didn't have anybody on his staff who understood football. Merton Hanks is now on George Klyovkov's staff. At least he understands football. But Klyovkov comes from the world of entertainment, from NBC Universal, from Hulu, from MGM, Sports and entertainment, his background is in events and mining those events for new revenue streams and trying to negotiate a TV deal. Like, how does that fit, if you really think about it, how do your Mark and Klyovkov fit alongside Jim Phillips of the ACC and Greg Sankey of the SEC, who Sankey's a guy who has worked in every job that, known to a conference in a school, like you know, was the head of intramurals at his college and then became a, a deputy commissioner. And then, you know, he's under, he understands how an athletic department fits 
in a college campus. He understands the overall mission. And it's not to say that, like, Klyovkov's going to be a bad commissioner or Yormark's going to be a bad commissioner, but it is evident that college athletics has veered away from the campus and that mission of higher education and is careening towards the professional world and leaning into things and people from the professional world who can help elevate the revenue streams. And we all understand why, right? Because money makes the world go round. Money is what uh, builds facilities. It's what hires great coaches. It's what uh, causes you to be able to recruit against other schools that are not in your footprint. Um, you know, money money helps, right? doesn't hurt. You look at the standings in the Pac-12 conference in men's basketball. Guess what? The top five or six teams in the standings, they're all spending money in men's basketball. It's not mystery. There's no accident going on. So I understand why college athletics is doing this, but it doesn't erase the fact that there is a problem here that is a philosophical problem. And I love how for years now they have trotted out student-athlete, air quotes, the student-athlete mission. We all know that in spite of the student-athlete mission, there are a whole bunch of things that are happening on campus that have nothing to do with students and, frankly, don't even really have to do with the fact that they're athletes. It's really just business. And, you know, the last thing that I think the colleges want is for uh, a court to determine that athletes are employees. Now you have a big problem. You have a larger problem on your campus. Um, you know, people have said it's the death of college athletics. You know, we've seen pivots like this before in his, in sports history. We have. But this one, it threatens to undermine the mission of a college campus. And I thought your mark spoke directly to that in the comments that I played there. I want you to leave it right here. You got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Great show on this Friday. Appreciate that you're along for the ride. Marshall Cho, high school basketball coach, coming up later in the program. We're going to talk about the state of high school basketball in the state of Oregon. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, you heard from Brett Yormark this week as he did an interview with uh, John Wilner and myself, and we have unpacked it a couple of times on the show, on uh, Wednesday's show and and today's show. But uh, it got me thinking about what other conference commissioners have told us and how these things fit together. Like, in my mind, I can hear how Brett Yormark's comments fit together with George Klyovkov's comments, fit together with Greg Sankey's comments. Those are the three commissioners in the Big 12, the Pac-12, and the SEC. Uh, but... Uh, I, uh, during the commercial break, pulled a cut from uh, my interview with Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner. And now, full disclosure, this this comment he's going to make came before the university presidents and chancellors voted to expand the college football playoff from four teams, which heavily favored the SEC teams. They have dominated this tournament. They have expanded now to 12. We have that coming on the horizon. But I still think it holds up because you can hear how Greg Sankey is thinking about the bigger picture. He's thinking about the ecosystem. He's thinking about the health of the game. Remember, the college football playoff, in its four-team form, has discriminated against the Pacific time zone. The teams in the Pac-12, the, P the teams west of Texas, have just not participated in this thing. And uh, here's Greg Sankey. Here's my question and his answer. And I wanted you to hear it in close proximity to what you just heard in the last segment from Brett Yormark, the Big 12 Conference Commissioner. Again, 
two commissioners, two Power Five conferences, very different backgrounds. Take a listen to my talk with Greg Sankey. I'm interested in the ecosystem of college athletics. And, you know, in business, I don't think McDonald's cares if Burger King survives or not. But in the college football world or in the college athletics world, you know, I I think the, eco, the health of the ecosystem should be important to, to all conferences. Why, why is that important or is that important as you view the SEC and your mission within the conference, but when you look at the broader picture across the country? Obviously, we want to be uh, successful in, in every sport we sponsor, um, and, and that's about us. But you also have to have uh, colleagues involved in that nationally competitive effort. And I've referenced uh, repeatedly that we don't need expansion of the college football playoff, as an example. We, we don't. Uh, even with the move to 16 teams, if the college football playoff stayed at four, we'd be fine, uh, given what's happened since it was implemented uh, through today. Uh, uh, we can stay at four with the New Year's Six model. Uh, that is not the perspective offered by everyone else over time. Um, and, and I think one of the motivating factors from our perspective is the need for football to be relevant on a national basis. That's important for us all. It's about opportunities that at the high school level, it's about uh, a college-going culture, if you will, around uh, high school programs seeking to provide opportunities for young people to continue to grow, to, to transition from adolescence to adulthood on a college campus. Um, and we've not had you know, a, a national perspective in the college football playoff for a period of time, or you could argue uh, over the last eight years, it's, it's been minimized. And so I, I look at it, and I think we've been able to have conversations with some disagreement in our conference, but have coalesced around the recognition that we need national competition. And there are a lot of layers to that conversation, but that's, I hope, a representative answer about the need um, for more than, than just the Southeastern Conference, for example. Love the way Sankey frames that. Like, he knows they're doing well. They're getting fat. They're happy. Georgia and Alabama, LSU at different times. They have dominated the college football playoff. They have raked in the money. They have been wildly successful. They don't need expansion. They never needed expansion. Uh, and now they're, you know, they're pivoting and they're going, okay, uh, now we're going to 12 teams? Great. How do we get three or four teams in every year so we continue to dominate this thing? That's sort of the game that happens within the game. But I love his viewpoint that... You know, they sort of recognized that the landscape wasn't working. It's not working for everyone when just the SEC is benefiting. And I wish more conference commissioners would would uh, think in those terms. I wish that they would put the 20,000-foot view in front of maybe what's best for them today. Because in a free market or in a marketplace like co the co world of college football – um, you know, the SEC's got confidence that it is going to thrive and it, and it can dominate, whether there's four teams or two teams or uh, a 12-team playoff or a 16-team playoff. I think Greg Sankey has it right. Now, what about George Kliofkoff, the Pac-12 commissioner? I think he falls closer to Sankey on the spectrum here. But here's George Kliofkoff talking about some of the same stuff. There will be incremental revenue distributed to all of the schools that participate. 
not not to make the CFP, but but are in these conferences as a result of the expansion of the CFP. And the more money that kind of gets distributed centrally and evenly uh, among uh, these schools, the less being in one conference or another make, makes a difference in your bottom line revenue. It's a good point. You know, and it's the math that Oregon and Oregon State and Washington and Washington State and, you know, the 10 members that are left behind in the Pac-12 conference, it's the math that they're all doing because they're looking at UCLA and USC who are running off to the Big Ten conference uh, because they're going to get, uh, you know, a financial windfall uh, by virtue of the media rights deal that the Big Ten conference has signed mostly with Fox. Uh, but it's going to be a tougher path to the playoff. And I think Klyovkov is selling to his members that the expansion of the playoff doesn't just create opportunity. It creates an, uh, a more even distribution of the revenue, meaning that the Big Ten and the SEC, which have dominated, the SEC has mostly dominated the college football playoff, they're not going to be able to sit back and reap the rewards. Uh, it does place more emphasis on the meteorites dollars, but it creates some revenue sharing when it comes to the college football playoff. There are automatic bids that will go in most years to the conference champions from the Power Five conferences. Uh, they're throwing a bone to the group of five teams that they have a they have a path to the playoff now with twelve teams being involved. I think it's you know I think there could be some hiccups. I think there could be some early round blowouts when they go to twelve teams. But I think we all want to see what happens, and we want to feel like the Pacific Time Zone, the West Coast. A uh, group of five teams, like, you know, a, a team like Tulane in a given year, uh, you know, like last season, they get an opportunity to stick their nose in there and prove that they belong on the same field as USC. Like, you know, let's not forget, USC was considered one of the best four teams in America down the stretch and met Tulane in that bowl game, and Tulane got them. And I think it was really interesting to see that kind of matchup. And I think we'll get those kinds of matchups out of the playoff. But I wanted to play those two commissioners because, look, Part of the beauty of this show is that we bring on guests like George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, um, uh, Brett Yormark, the Big 12 commissioner. We need to get Jim Phillips of the ACC on, but it uh, also gives us a chance to kind of talk to some bigger personalities and and kind of uh, figure out, you know, where's the common ground here? I think everybody in college athletics wants the NCAA to figure out name, image, likeness, wants them to figure out the transfer portal. I also think there's concerns about the imbalance of revenue when it comes to media rights distributions. And I think even some Big Ten members that, that get it, that look at the overall landscape, go, hey, um, you know, this is, this is essentially like the Big Ten conference members having one salary cap and then everybody else having another salary cap. It's going to be interesting to see how that manifests itself. But when it comes to the playoff and it comes to the postseason – I do think there's a, a whole bunch of common ground between the Big 12, the Pac-12, even the SEC. I'm not sure where the Big 10 stands because with uh, Kevin Warren out of the picture, I just think there's some leadership uh, changes going on there. And my gut is that the presidents and chancellors of most of those Big 10 universities understand the value of higher education. It's kind of what their mission is rooted in. Uh, leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. Coming up later in the show, we'll visit with Lake Oswego. Boys basketball coach Marshall Cho. Uh, we visited with Heather Seeley Roberts earlier in the program. I thought it was a fantastic discussion of the state of things in high school athletics and high school basketball in the state of Oregon. 
Uh, Marshall Cho, uh, outspoken as always, coming up. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. My kids like to sit around sometimes and they like to play a game called Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And sometimes we use that Amazon device. You know the name of it. I don't want to say it on radio because if you have one with an earshot, uh, I'm not. I'm pretty sure I'm going to light up uh, your device. But you know who I'm talking about. Amazon Alexa. Anyway, she uh, she plays this uh, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader game sometimes with the kids and and uh, myself. And I like to uh, I like to build my confidence back by uh, proving that I am smarter than a fifth grader. But um, it it strikes me that you know we sit around and you know sometimes there's a first grade question, sometimes there's a second grade question. You know uh, what river runs through the bottom of the Grand Canyon? Which of the Great Lakes is the only lake that uh, every part of it is within the United States uh, border? Um, stuff like that and uh, animal questions, science, sports sometimes. Um, but it, it it's one of these games that reminds me how much we have changed as a society. And, you know, my parents used to have like 20 volume Encyclopedia Britannica set. And I'm sure you had one when you were a kid, maybe, or your parents did or your grandparents did. And if you ever wanted to know something, you had to go over there and you had to hope that the volume <laughs> that included, you know, the subject matter that you were, uh, that you were going to look up. Like if you were doing a report on, you know, the country, uh, Peru, you better hope that the volume that had the letter P was still there on the shelf. Nothing more frustrating than going over there to try to research something when you were a kid and finding the one volume of the 24 Encyclopedia Britannicas that sat on that dusty bookshelf, that one volume missing, and then having to hunt around the house and finding that your younger brother is using it in his bedroom to prop up like the corner of his bed or something ridiculous or you know he's got a uh, a five dollar bill stuck between the pages in his room that he's trying to press ever so crisply uh you know the problems that we had as a kid were very different but if we ever wanted to know something really wanted to know something we had to wore it right we had to go get that encyclopedia we had to pull out that volume we had to flip through the pages we had to look it up or you know it was a thesaurus or a dictionary we actually had these books back in the day now you got your cell phone right or a laptop computer or pc and what happens when you don't know the answer to something you uh nobody's okay with not knowing first of all try it at, at your uh table your dinner table tonight uh say hey i got a trivia question for you does anybody know uh which which of the uh great lakes is the only lake to uh, have every part of it inside the uh, the United States border, and uh, and then if no one knows, go. It's okay. We'll fi- we'll look it up later. Watch how fast people reach for their phones to Google it. Ask any trivia question, and watch how fast people reach for their phones. We are just not okay as a society not knowing, and that's how we used to be able to tell if people were dumb or people were smart. There were smart people who knew things, and then there are other people who didn't know things. 
And now everyone can just Google and appear to be smart and look things up. Or as my kids say, search it up, Dad. You know, that's what they say. And I'm like, you mean look it up? No, search it up. So um, anyway, I, I digress because I I just feel like we're in a time where we think we might be smarter than ever. We're smarter than a fifth grader. We know the answers to some things. And if we don't know the answers, we know where to find it. We know where to look it up. Now, there's part of that that is good because it's not like hunting through the Encyclopedia Britannica. But there's part of that. There's a little bit of delayed gratification that was probably healthy for our brains back in the day when we were not able to immediately know things or have it at, the, at our fingertips. Or, or maybe we had to wait till we went to school the next day and ask the teacher or ask somebody else or go to the library. Nobody does that anymore. Of course, we are all experts on all things. Uh, I only bring this up because coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Marshall Cho, the Lake Oswego High School boys basketball coach. And uh, we've had him on before. I love talking with him, love having him on the show. And love picking his brain, not just on what is going on with kids in the world, but what's going on with high school basketball and sports and teaching of kids and what advice does he have for parents out there that have young kids uh, who are trying to bring them up. And I and I think, you know, I've said this before, one of the things I really like about Deion Sanders, the new uh, Colorado coach, it's not the fact that Deion's a great player, uh, was a great player, that he brings a lot of excitement and passion and sell some season tickets for Colorado. It's not really that at all. The thing that I really like is when I see moments, and granted, Dion may be acting, but I like what I see if he is acting. I see moments where Deion Sanders is coaching the whole student-athlete, the whole person, I should just say. I hate when people use student-athlete because it's such a misnomer in today's college athletics world. But, you know, Deion Sanders um, is coaching the whole person. He is instilling discipline. He is trying to make his players better students. He's trying to make them better people. At least at face value, that's what he's trying to do. Uh, I think a lot of high school coaches in our state are doing that. Like, you know, there are some really good programs like Tualatin and West Lynn High School that have great boys' basketball programs. Historically, we've seen some great girls' players come out of our state and go on to get scholarships and play at a high level. But um, what I really admire and respect about the coaches that I – see over and over in our state is the fact that they are all sort of moving in the same direction, working on the same things, and they're focused on developing people, good people, not just good basketball players. There's so much there that I think we should all be applauding, win or lose, on uh, what is a great Friday where there'll be some big games going on tonight that will decide league, league championships and have implications on seeding. Let's not uh, do that without acknowledging uh, the fact that these teachers and coaches largely are just developing good people, right? I mean, they're just coaching kids and teaching kids and taking care of kids. And I think in a lot of cases that gets lost when we start talking about the playoffs in high school basketball and whatnot, because it's just going to be a few years. And a lot of these players that are seniors this year, maybe having a senior night, even tonight uh, or, you know, next week, maybe their final high school home games, um, you know, what's lost is that just in a couple few years from now, uh, these kids, a lot of these kids won't be playing. And they'll have this experience to look back upon and to build upon and to say, hey, I got real growth there as a person. And, man, I'm so blessed that I was on a team in high school and I felt like we were on a mission. And, you know, I asked earlier this week and we had a bunch of phone calls on the subject, but I asked, would you rather be 
the best player in the worst team or the worst player in the best team? And I think the answer is like there's not a wrong answer there, but there's certainly a telling answer there, isn't there? Like you can learn a lot about people by finding out what the answer to that question is and what what do they value or maybe at this particular point in their life, you know, would what do they want? You know, do they feel like they've taken a back seat already to this point in their life and they're ready to, you know, be the person on uh arguably a bad team or do they want to do they want to win a championship and they they're okay being a role player on that. I think it's a fascinating discussion, but I think kids uh, who are playing high school basketball and other sports this school year are getting a lot more, obviously, than the wins and losses and getting more than a cardiovascular workout. All right, coming up, we have a fantastic 5 o'clock hour. Marshall Cho will be with us. I'll tell you what's on tap for the weekend. We're going to have a lot of fun in the happy hour. I appreciate everybody who makes this show part of their day. Stay tuned and buckle up. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. This show is sailing along. I hope everybody's having a great Friday. Anna is popped into the studio. We're going to give you the five biggest, baddest stories in sports as Anna sees them. Giddy up. The five at five. Anna, number one. Well, this one has a lot of people talking. I don't quite know what to make of it. So Tiger Woods appeared to hand Justin Thomas a tampon after outdriving him. Uh, this is so bizarre to me that they thought that, I, I don't know if they meant to, like, have this be scrutinized and caught on video or if they thought that they could get away, or if Tiger thought he could get away with this with no one actually noticing. Uh, but yeah, his little gift, uh, for Thomas after driving one past him on, uh, number nine was a Tampax tampon and it has a lot of people critical saying this is the, you know, lame, kind of dumb jock, misogynistic kind of stuff. Uh, I'm not easily offended by these kind of things, but it certainly has sparked a lot of conversation today. This is at the ninth hole in the Genesis Invitational. They were laughing and embracing after the incident, but to me this smacks of Tiger Woods didn't have a normal childhood, and it this feels like a joke that like a... 13-year-old boy in middle school would make towards his friend. And, you know, in the golf world, uh, I get what he's saying. He's handing him a purse. You know, he's basically saying, you are driving like a woman. And this isn't going to go well for Tiger. There's going to be backlash. But I'm chalking this up as more of a lack of maturity than a lack of decency. Number two. Uh, this cracked me up. So Patrick Mahomes, uh, still in celebration mode. This guy's going to celebrate for like the next half year. Uh, the Chiefs parade was on Wednesday. Uh, a lot of fun. Uh, but one of the more notable moments in the day was that as he celebrated, he was taking pictures with fans at the celebration parade. He was holding the Lombardi trophy and then walked away after handing the fan the trophy. <laughs> so definitely like... Caught up in the moment 
And uh, some people are pointing out that Tom Brady did a similar thing with the Buccaneers parade a couple of years ago. Uh, can you imagine? You gotta, you gotta hold on to the trophy, man. Well, look, Brady was throwing this thing off the back of the boat, and this has become fashionable as athletes celebrate their championships. I think it's uh, a sign of the times, and I don't think it's going to get reeled back in. Um, as I uh, talked about earlier in the uh, program, you've got uh, Travis Kelsey going on Saturday Night Live. Uh, get the exposure while you can. Number three in the five at five. Steve Kerr coming out uh, about AAU basketball. Some really harsh comments about it, saying that, uh, you know, today's players may be gifted, but they grow up in a basketball environment that he describes as counterproductive. He's saying that, you know, AAU basketball has replaced high school ball as the dominant form of development in the teen years. Uh, he coached his son's AAU team for three years, and he calls it a genuinely weird subculture. In particular, he's criticizing that if mom and dad aren't happy with their kids' playing time, they switch club teams and stick them on a different one the following week. He even talked about circumstances where, you know, programs fly in top players from out of state for a single weekend to join their team. That's insane. This isn't development. If you are flying someone in or, or if that person is not practicing or hell, it's Curry even talked about the fact that a lot of these teams don't even practice. You're not development. The practices at the club level, I think, should be more valuable to the kids in their development than the games are. We all know kids want to play games, but practice is where you make those gains, not games, gains. So I think Steve Kerr's spitting truth here. I would like to see the AAU system, the club system, rope itself back in. I think there are a lot of good club coaches out there who do the right things. Uh, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk to Marshall Cho, Lake Oswego High School uh, boys basketball coach, uh, about some of this stuff that is going on out there. Number four in the 5 at 5. Anna, what do you got? Well, Florida's going to try to crack down here on storming the field or storming the court after their favorite uh, you know, college team, anybody's favorite college team, pulls off a big win. Multiple bills in the Florida State Legislature will criminalize this process of storming the field. Uh, multiple bills in both houses uh, of their legislature are issuing penalization of anyone who uh, throws, drops, or tosses objects into covered areas and also, like, you know, it actually enters it with their body. Look, I'm all for policing fans and fan behavior. I don't like people throwing things at game. Make that a crime. That's a crime anyway. You're not supposed to assault anybody. But storming the field? Come on. This is lawmakers who probably have never stormed the field themselves, not really understanding what that's about. I don't want to take the emotion out of sports. I don't want to take the fans out of the event. If you feel like hopping over the railing and uh, you can safely do so, by all means, have at it. Get the lawmakers back to what they're supposed to be doing, uh, making the world better. Number five in the five at five. You're on a roll here. Uh, the penalty would be uh, up to a year in jail or a $2,500 fine. It would be a misdemeanor. Okay, uh, we've talked a lot about professional pickleball, but let's talk about professional volleyball. So Jason Derulo uh, is uh, seeing big things happening in women's pro volleyball. The musician launched a brand new volleyball franchise in Nebraska, and it will be part of a league founded by Bengals quarterback Joe Burrow. What is happening? I like it. Uh, look, there's a saturation of sports, and I like that athletes are getting involved. They're being entrepreneurial, but... 
I don't want to see this on television any more than I want to see pickleball on television. That is the five at five. There's already a saturation. There's too much out there. We talked about this yesterday. The sports market is clouded. You've got, you know, obviously longer NFL season, longer Major League Baseball season, MLS year-round, Major League Baseball playing too many games. You've got pickleball coming with 300 hours on ESPN in the next year. Now volleyball. Uh, What's next? XFL, AAFL, too many things. The market is too saturated. Uh, I liked it when fans had a chance to sit back and absorb the games and talk about the games and watch the games before five other games uh, had kicked off, but television's not going to let us do that. All right, coming up, we're going to talk with a guy who's got his finger on the pulse of high school athletics, high school basketball in the state of Oregon. We talked earlier in the show with a great coach at Lincoln High School, Heather Seeley Roberts. Marshall Cho, University of Oregon grad, kid who grew up in uh, the Eugene area, is joining us next to talk about uh, what he's doing and the state of basketball in the state of Oregon. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I've been thinking and talking a lot about high school sports in the state of Oregon. Of course, we're in basketball season. Uh, earlier in the show, Heather Seely Roberts, the Lincoln High School coach, joined us to give her perspective. Joining us now, Lake Oswego High School boys basketball coach Marshall Cho, highly successful coach uh, and has been on this show a number of times. Thanks for making time for us, Coach. Thanks for having me, John. I just I kind of want to check in more than anything, and I know you're playing Oregon City tonight. Big game for you guys, big game in the basketball world. But you know, how has this season been? What are you seeing across the state in this? You know, as far as the quality of play in the state of Oregon. Yeah, you said successful earlier. I appreciate that. You know, I can't believe it's already year eight at Lake Oswego for me. Um, you know, this this year for us, you know, personally, you know, for our team has been a little bit bumpy. Um, obviously, the Three Rivers League is one of the top, you know, leagues in the state. We just got off of back-to-back games on Friday and this past Tuesday um, playing Westland and Tualatin, you know, number one and number three in the state, you know, respectively. Um, and so just, you know, those teams at the top, they, you know, they just have so much talent. Um, they have a lot of chemistry and and you know they've all played a really tough schedule so um it's been a challenge for us we dropped those two games um but yeah just across the board i think after some of the top teams there's there's pretty good balance out there so i still like our chances um the the fact that in our state you know the power rankings decides you know where you finally play you know finally end up at the end of the season and and we might not achieve the goal of getting into top eight this year and hosting two playoff games but you know i like our chances if we can get into the top 32 and and try to steal a couple couple of games to get to the child center yeah give me an idea there because you know some coaches when that format changed liked it some didn't uh how do you see that now that it's become a part of the postseason yeah, you know, I, I grew up in Springfield, Oregon. This is back in, you know, I went to high school in 91 through 95. Um, back then, you know, I played down there in the Midwestern League. And, you know, all I knew was, like, you know, the top four teams in the league advance, and you get matched up with teams from different leagues and whatnot. Um, 
ever since my year one here in 2015-16 season, I've, all I've known is the power rankings. So, you know, I think every coach can, you know, take their approach in terms of how they schedule. But I don't know if the listeners are familiar with this, but every spring, you know, soon after our season is over, usually the athletic directors across the state, they meet. And it's like speed dating, right? They have a, a meeting and, and they, you know, each coach gets to decide, hey, do I want a typical schedule? Do I want a moderate schedule? Do I want a, you know, like a softer, weaker schedule, right? Just depending on how you think your team's going to project. Um, and then the teams get matched accordingly. Tough, you know, those who request the tough schedules, you know, get to match up with other schools that request the same. And so for me, you know, the philosophy here has been always, you know, if you want to, you want to be playing the best, you know, basketball at the end of the season. And, and the idea is for us is no matter the record, if your strength of schedule is strong, then you have a good chance of still being in the top 16. So even, if, even my first two years were 11, 14, 12, and 13, but we still got to linger around the 15, 16, 17 range. So, you know, um, first year we had to go on the road as the 18 seed, you know, second year we got to host the game as the 15 seed. So there's a little bit of gamesmanship there, but, um, I'd like it that way. Um, a lot of people could say, hey, the rankings are, you know, could be impersonal. But generally, over the years, what, what it's shown is that, you know, when, when the seedings play out, um, it kind of matches up to the power rankings. There's very few upsets, usually. Marshall Cho is with us, uh, Lake Oswego boys basketball coach. Um, the, you, you mentioned kind of the balance after maybe the top few teams, that parity. Um, is this good for the game? Is is there a cause from that, or is it just cyclical in your mind? Yeah, it's hard to say. You know, we're just the. I was talking to my athletic director today, and we were, he, we were just reminiscing how just even a year ago we were still coaching. You know, some of our playoff games with masks on and, and things of that nature. You know, we forget that we're just still just full season out. You know, of our post COVID. You know, um, you know effects. So. Um, I think it's good. Um, you know, it, it definitely makes for interesting um, playoff rounds. You know, when you get to it, you know, again, it's 32, top 32 teams make it for the most part, and that's five games to win the state championship, and anything goes. And I think a year like this is super exciting. Obviously, West Lynn at the top, which, you know, somebody like Jackson Shell said is pretty special. Barlow sitting in number two, you know, with a legendary coach at the home with Tom Johnson, and they got a super talented sophomore in Jalen Atkins, and everybody a really good pieces surrounding him. So I think, you know, like you get past that a little bit, and anything can happen. I, you know, I, I said earlier about the power rankings usually playing itself out. I, I would say the uncertainty of this year um, – I could see some upsets happening this year. Jackson so Shellstead, you know, I've talked with you over the years, and I think it's great to get kind of the outside-in opposing coach viewpoint. You spoke about Peyton Pritchard on this show a couple of few years ago, and now West Lynn High has another player who's headed to Oregon. What makes Jackson good? Um, you know, I... I, I... I've spoken at length about this before as well. I think, you know, the natural comparisons with Peyton, you know, can be unfair at times. But you know, I think the biggest thing that's impressed me about him is just his level of poise and and how, you know, he doesn't get really up and down, you know, over the course of a game that, that you know, some and some people may look at that and critique it, but I, I think it's just a sign of strength. Um, 
you know, again, I'm, as a Lake Oswego coach or just like probably relating to any other high school coaches around the state that had to go up against those two, you know, like hopefully, you know, I'm done with, you know, <laughs> uh, having to go up against player, you know, coaching against those, you know, that caliber of player, you know, um, when Jack, and again, I've only coached against Peyton when he was a senior. So, I, you know, I, for Jackson, I think we, we got some wins against his teams earlier on the in the year, you know, in his freshman and sophomore years where, Again, people really, you know, we have a tremendous sophomore class in our state. You know, we have a player, Winners Grady, who's an exceptional player. I mentioned Jalen Atkins before. There's Isaac Carr at Central Catholic. And so those the classes are definitely cyclical. But, you know, even for Jackson, so much pressure those first few years. And, and we got some, you know, we were fortunate to have some wins early in those early years. And so what's been the most impressive thing about him is even though, you know, there were, you know, temptations to maybe go outside of state, go to prep school route like most, you know, players and, and the trends moving that way. The fact that, like, he stayed in the state, he's shown dramatic improvement from his junior to senior year, leading a team, and he has, he's got a chance to, you know, win the Les Schwab, you know, beat a couple of, na- you know, nationally ranked teams, get Westland itself, you know, nationally ranked. I mean, if you continue that trajectory of improvement, then then you can get excited about what he's going to be able to accomplish at Oregon, however long he ends up there. You touched on it a little bit, and Heather Seeley Roberts talked about this at length early in the show. She's concerned about that lost year. And, and you have young kids. I have young kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife is volunteering in the classroom, and she's saying she's coming home and going, gosh, these teachers are really dealing with, you know, first graders, second graders, third graders who didn't have kids in a classroom just a couple of years ago and they really got disrupted and there's just a developmental gap. Are you seeing mm-hmm. any of that in in sports, in basketball? Did kids sort of, you know, did some kids not get the development that you would have expected? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely, I mean, I can only speak from our perspective at Lake Oswego. Um, we take tremendous pride in the amount of offseason and you know, development work that we do, I think there's two things that we missed out on. Not not so much even just the time in the gym, the actual, you know, the actual number of days that we missed out, but really the sense of, um, and it's, you can't blame them, you know, but if, if these kids have all, and we as adults are still coping with it, I think, you know, that sense of safety, that sense of security, just getting completely stripped away. And now, you know, especially team sports like basketball where you're asking there's sacrifice that you're asking for each individual member of a team to do. And, it, and this is not to say that, you know, kids have become more selfish or anything like that, but there is a sense of self-preservation. I think it's just human nature that we're all going through. And so, you know, some of that element, I think, um, we can't take for granted, you know, how much longer it might take to build team chemistry, how much longer it might be, you know, it might take for kids to learn how to communicate with each other face-to-face, right? I mean, I, I noticed just even on small things like that, you know, I've, we've always taken pride that we're one of the most vocal and talkative teams on the floor um, on both ends, you know, on defense and offensive ends, and that has been like pulling teeth this year. And we've had to find different creative ways to get guys to talk on the floor, off the floor. But, you know, that type of social social interactive, you know, elements that we've missed out on, I, I think it's across the board um, in a big hole to, you know, fill back up. And definitely for basketball, it, it's noticeable out there. I, I want to talk to you about the Les Schwab Invitational, the experience there, what that tournament means, also what it was like to see Bishop Gorman and, 
uh, Sierra Canyon and Bronny James. Uh, but uh, I need to take a break here. Marshall Cho, head boys basketball coach, Lake Oswego High School. More with him. Plus, Coach, I'm going to ask you to give advice to parents who have younger kids playing youth sports. What kinds of things should they be doing? What should they be thinking about? All of that coming up next. More with Marshall Cho coming up right here on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Okay, he's talked about high school basketball, the parity, the balance that they're seeing, the playoffs ahead here for state high school basketball in the state of Oregon. Uh, just a few games, few regular season games, then the playoffs will begin. Marshall Cho is with us, Lake Oswego High School boys basketball coach. Before I get back into the basketball, I noticed on your social media feeds, Coach, that you had Greg Bell come in and talk with your team, water the bamboo, uh, motivational speech. Why Why do you do that kind of stuff, and what do you guys get out of that? Um, yeah, Greg was so generous to come, um, and he, you know, he, had, he and I had a chance to catch up for coffee last week, and I, I bumped into him at the Gonzaga University of Portland game. I, I was fortunate, you know, for a stretch of years, you know, four or five years back, I used to run clinics at the Multnomah Athletic Club, and, you know, it's amazing how time flies. You talk about having kids, and Greg had a, a young daughter at the time that none of us knew that, you know, many years later would end up being a McDonald's All-American and Sophia, and now, you know, going on to have this amazing opportunity to play for Coach Graves at Oregon. Um, so we ran into, we all ran into each other. Hey, you know, we should catch up, catch up for coffee, which is always, you know, for that piece of it, I, you know, I know I can just empathize with all the coaches out there. It's Across the board, you know, the challenges that we talked about earlier, um, it's been uh, it's been a long season for many of my colleagues out there when I check in with them. And so even for me, you know, meeting with people like Greg who are outside of it, um, it it's really to kind of take care of myself, you know, fill my cup so that I can turn around and, you know, try to do my best to give it to the guys. I, you know, I haven't been really good about it myself, just being a workaholic and just, you know, going through the grind of the season. And... So that that was really an, an attempt to fill my cup first, and then when he offered, hey, maybe you know he can come and speak to the guys, you know, um, it was a chance for them their cups to be filled by somebody outside of our program. And I think that's so important. Um, I like to think that the message of you know courage, you know, um, patience, and and you know again watering that bamboo every year, you know, um, so it's it's believing that what is delayed is not denied that, you know, your first year, you may water it, there's no growth, second year, no growth. And it's so easy for our young people, again, coming out of COVID, coming out of, in the day and age when they're looking at their cell phones and that's how they communicate, you know, teaching them delayed gratification and what better illustration of that than, you know, understanding that a bamboo plant in the first five years before it goes through this exponential growth, what it's doing is it's just setting its roots down. The, the work that you can't see underground so that, you know, the foundation is strong. And then when that moment comes, you know, maybe you drop that last drop of water, watering it, and next thing you know, it's going 90 feet in 50 days. So, you know, especially even for our group, you know, we're going through a pretty tough, you know, tough year for our standards. We're still ranked, you know, around number 23 in the state, um, lurking in the background, but really still searching for that signature win. 
you know, it was, it was just an amazing opportunity and good timing to have somebody like Greg come in and, and share his wisdom and, it's you know, really just words of encouragement. I, I think one of the things that he said to the guys that re- really resonated with me as a father is that, you know, he reminded them, like, hey, each of us is a miracle. And now can you treat the person to the right of you, to the left of you, as a miracle themselves? You know, and, and how would that shift in how you speak to each other, how you treat each other, how you think about each other, how you try to make the extra pass to get to celebrate the success of a teammate? You know, all those important things that we missed out on, you know, to have somebody like Greg who has a basketball background, who has a daughter who's playing right now, um, share with us was just, you know, something I couldn't pass up. And if any of the listeners out there want to, you know, have me forward along his, you know, uh, his contacts or book or anything like that, you know, I'd be happy to. It's interesting. You hear coaches talk in college a lot about coaching the person, not just the athlete. Like you do Mm -hmm. that and you do it at the high school level. Did you learn that somewhere or is that just something that's always been important to you? I just think, you know, it's, it's easy to get loose perspective, you know, on the wins and losses. And, you know, I think the the best advice, you know, my, back in 2000, I had just graduated from, you know, University of Oregon. And I joined a program called Teach for America. And the assignment was to go and be a middle school teacher in the South Bronx. Um, I had actually been placed at a school called Paul Wilderson Intermediate School. And, and the school was, you talk about, you know, schools that are dysfunctional um, or having kids who came to your classroom a grade or two grade levels behind. Um, when I think about some of the things that I, I've seen in terms of the gap that are all our kids across the state have gone through, it, it reminds me of being a seventh grade teacher in the South Bronx and having a kid who came in, um, you know, with fifth grade, you know, math level or fourth grade math level, and and their reading skills are also comparable. So now you're it's it's a double whammy because not only are you teaching regular math problems, but you're teaching word problems to kids who can't read sufficiently, right? And I remember this being such a challenging first year, and I happened to speak to a veteran teacher next door who had taught in that school district for 25 years plus, and I asked him, I asked him how is it that he's done it so long. And I'll never forget, he, he said to me, you know, think about each of your students that comes into your classroom as a scale. They each hold this personal scale. And how they behave in your class is a reflection of all the academic experiences that they've had before. That if they believe that they're not good at math, at some point along the line, on that scale, they've gotten that message that they can't do math. And that's a, that's a stone that gets placed onto the negative side of the scale. And so... The only responsibility you have as a teacher is you can't take those negative experiences away. But what you can do is put a positive experience on the other side. Um, and, and the perspective of it, if you get to see that scale tip over the course of your school year, then be humble and be grateful that it's not just the work that you did, but all the teachers that had done the work before you. And if you don't see that you know, scale tip, don't lose faith that you know, that work that you put into the kid wasn't wasted, that you have to keep your faith as a teacher that the, the person that hopefully the student will get next year, they'll get to experience that success of the work you did. So similar to that, you know, I guess as I'm saying, sharing this story, I hadn't, I hadn't shared that story in a long time, but, you know, maybe I, it was triggered by what Greg had to share earlier, but it's just working in faith that, you know, if you are treating them, you know, and even, it's not even the person piece, like, 
you know, a lot of lessons that we, we try to, you know, share on the basketball court of even just, hey, eyes on the rim when you're making the layup, like focus on, on your target, on your goal. I mean, those are all, you know, in small ways and in large ways, lessons that, you know, go beyond the court. So um, I never forgot that foundation that I had in my first six years as a school teacher, even before I started coaching. Um, and so I think that's, that's, you know, that's why I try to, you know, consider the basketball gym as my classroom, not just, you know, a place where games are played. Marshall Cho is our guest, Lake Oswego boys basketball coach. You, you made me think about something when you talked about kind of kids putting their phones away and focusing. Uh, this has happened yeah. in our lifetime, right? Like this yeah. mobile device that I have sitting beside me as we're doing this show. Um, yep. it's, this is new. We've all learned in our own way to cope with it. How big of a problem do you think the phones are for teenage kids? You're around them all the time. Yeah, I think it's a problem for all of us. It's a problem for me. You know, I think it's so I, – I don't know if it's a problem for you at home as well. I know you got a little kid. It's and, a problem. And yeah. and I have a seventh-grade son just this year. He just got a phone, and he's on it a lot. So it's it's really reflecting on me like, man, that's what I look like with somebody who's super important in my life. Um, he's on it constantly as a seventh grader. He's in the fantasy basketball league, you know, with his buddies. <laughs> and he's constantly checking stats. And, you know, he's, I, I, I can't blame him. You know, I think he's a coach's son. So he's learned that from me of just constantly watching games and paying attention to it. So uh, there's a small piece of me that's proud, but also, you know, a bigger part of me that's alarmed at how much he's on his phone already, just having, you know, had it for the last month. So. Did you did you say, did you have a rule like he had to be in seventh grade to get the phone, or what was, what caused, what triggered him getting it? Uh, you know, it's it's just like anything else, I think, just socially, like everybody else in this grade level is, you know, on it. So it was holding off as long as we could before it, it felt like he was not a part of the communication that's yeah, happening right. with his peers, <laughs> yeah. right? So, yeah, you can you can teach me more about that. No, I don't um, know. I don't have the answers. I'm asking you. <laughs> yeah, shoot. Um, yeah, it, it, it's scary. You know, I think that that's why I think the basketball or any sports piece is so awesome because you can't play basketball with the cell phone in your hand. You know, it's, it's, you can't play, you can't swing a bat, you can't swing a tennis racket, you know, whatnot. So, um, I just think it's super important for kids to be involved in sports as long as they can, but it's, yeah, I, I don't know where, where it goes. I think not just the fact that the phone is there, I think the social media piece of it is huge. Um, I think the validation that, that people seek and, and I can only, maybe I'll just, you know, specify to athletes, right? Um, the amount of criticism that they can receive or get tagged in after a game between student sections, um, you know, things of that things of that nature that I I even saw five years ago when we had a really successful team and, and the amount of, you know, vitriol or trash talk that can cross the line that's you know, that can be really dangerous. I think, you know, we as adults have to always, you know, be on alert, be mindful of it, but understand that it's it's such a heavy part of their, their daily life, you know, livelihood. Marshall, the Les Schwab Invitational Tournament, it ended up being, I think, a highlight for a lot of people in the state because you had Bishop Gorman, you had Sierra Canyon, you had the circus around Bronny James, and the Oregon teams represented well. West Lynn winning the tournament and... And, you know, we talked about this with Heather Seeley Roberts of Lincoln High School earlier. You were there as well with your team. What was that experience like for you guys? Yeah, we've been we've been blessed to be able to be a part of it for the last eight years. Um, it's 
I mean, it's it's a top-tier event. I've been fortunate to be a part, you know, when I was a part of the Dematha coaching staff, I got to experience some other big-time events, such as the Hoop Hall in Springfield, Massachusetts, or just even the WCAC, the league that's, you know, the Catholic School League in Washington, D.C., that's you know, generally known as the best, you know, strongest league um, that used to exist for traditional high school basketball. Um, when I came here as part of the coaching staff, the, this is the crazy part. We won the 2011 Les Schwab, and we beat a very good Bishop uh, Jesuit team with the by Kyle Wiltshire. Um And then we ended up being, beating Bishop Gorman. That was led by uh, Shabazz Muhammad. Is that his name? The, the yeah. power four that is played yep. at UCLA, right? Yeah. Yep. So yeah, we yeah, and our our starting lineup had included a uh, young Jeremy Grant, um, who's now playing for the Blazers. Um, but when we played, we prior to that we also played Westview High School, and both those games, coached by Pat Coons and Gene Potter, were single digit games where both both games we were you know in a neck and neck race in the fourth quarter. So just that perspective alone, I understand how. I think for many of our Oregon high school teams, I think it's taking confidence that when you're playing, you have the entire state behind you. And I think a lot of the out-of-state teams, when they come in, they underestimate that challenge. And I didn't get to attend all the games, so I did I did go and watch the semifinal game um, between Sierra Canyon and Westland. And I think you probably heard about it. Many of the listeners who are sports fans know, I mean, at some point as – Sierra Canyon got out to a lead, but Westland was hanging around, hanging around. They were trying to face Carl Jackson and bully him and, and get physical with them, which is, you know, was a mistake, you know, because I think it, they were kind of falling into that trap of trying to do that with Jackson, who couldn't be rattled. Next thing you know, you know, as the game starts turning, it, it had for me, having been a high school coach here, it, it was the most electric environment for a high school game that I've experienced, where the entire gym rallied behind an Oregon team. And you see how that just, you know, allowed these guys to play, you know, just beyond what they, you know, normally are able to do. And, and it was just a special thing to see. Um, the last state team to win, the Les Schwab was, you know, a Lake Oswego team led by Calvin Hermanson and Connor Griffin. And and hopefully, you know, this uh, inspirational moment like that allows us to know that, you know, maybe we shouldn't go every 10 years for an Oregon team to prevail. But you know, maybe we can we can start to get get a few more in the next five, four or five years. I, I have to know what you think of Bronny James as a player, and I don't want to you know unfairly criticize a high school kid just because he's LeBron James' son. But mm-hmm. what did you what do you see when you see him on the court? Yeah, I, you know, I, I that was actually the first time I actually got a chance to see him play. I know he just got selected for the Nike Hoop Summit team. Um, I've done. You know the junior national team program over the years, but this is really his first involvement. There was pre-COVID, there was talk that you know he was good enough and he would be invited to the camp. But you know, I think the criticism, aside from the criticism, I think just in many ways, I I think Jackson is a superior basketball player right now than Ronnie. But I think what some of those players, when you look at them and they have the it factor in terms of the poise and their ability to handle pressure. I think Bronny, you know, definitely, like, just from the outside looking in, I mean, you talk about that circus, you know, they had some shoot-arounds. We hosted, you know, their shoot-arounds on on game days, and, you know, they're pulling up in their, you know, huge, you know, charter buses. They have security guards. You talk, I mean, it is an entire, it is a a, a circus, it's an operation, whatever you want to call it. It's it's everywhere that, that he goes, he has that target on his back. And so for to watch him and, and see how much poise he had, you know, he didn't have a very good game 
um, against Westland. And, you know, it's not like his body language changed. He wasn't pouting. He was tr still trying to make the right plays. So I think some of that character stuff, I think, is always going to just kind of prevail in the long run. And, and then in terms of basketball, like, you know, he may not be putting up crazy numbers, but, you know, he's got fundamental, he's got solid fundamentals and mechanics and all his jump shots and his, you know, clearly, you know, on how he handles the rock and all that stuff. But also, any, other than the size piece, I mean, he's athletic enough, right? So he's going to have a shot at it. Um, and we'll see. Maybe maybe he can end up, you know, down our way, too, at Oregon, and, you know, we'll get a chance to see him more often here. You mentioned Jeremy Grant, and, I, and a lot of Blazer fans, probably their ears popped up, you know, you saw him as a high school kid. What was he like at that age? You know, I I was fortunate. I got to see him, see that growth again, sophomore, junior, and senior year. And, you know, sophomore year, he was buried behind a senior class that included Victor Oladipo and his older brother, Jerry Grant. Quinn Cook, who played, you know, for the Warriors and, and in the league for as a vet for a long time, the Lakers, he was a junior. So, I mean, he was on a stacked team as a role player. Um, but even back then, you know, we would go play in these major national, you know, tournaments, and NBA scouts and college scouts would watch, would say, hey, I mean, he's going to be a 10-year pro back then. So, you know, I think, again, what, what's been the most impressive thing about him is I, I keep harping on this, you know, I think whether you're a freshman or Lake Oswego or Tiger or Twelveton or, or Lincoln or you're, you know, Jeremy Grant as a sophomore at the Matha and going on to play at Syracuse, I think those players who can continue to evolve and add, you know, different skill sets every offseason to improve on their game, um, I think this speaks a lot to their character. It speaks a lot to their grit, their vision for who they are. Um, it speaks a lot to the people that are surrounding him that that he didn't rush the process of trying to be the next Kevin Durant or trying to be next somebody else. That if you really look at his journey, that every year he's improved in some, you know, some facet of his game. So I think. That just speaks to the, you know, that's a testament to his character and, and his humility and, you know, his hunger to get better. Marshall Cho, I appreciate your time. Good luck tonight against uh, Oregon City and the rest of the way, and we'll catch up to you maybe uh, in the playoffs. But thank you for your wisdom, and thanks for what you're doing with kids. I, I think teachers right now, I've got a lot of empathy and a lot of respect for teachers and coaches who are out there, you know, fighting the fight in the wake of, I think, what was a really difficult you know, 18 to 24 months for a lot of kids. No, I appreciate your time. We appreciate what you do for our state. And uh, uh, thank you for giving me the chance to just catch up and talk hoops. That was absolute gold with Marshall Cho. What an assessment of high school basketball. I love that we had Heather Seeley Roberts on the show, Lincoln High School coach early. She was great. You bookend that with Marshall Cho, Lego Oswego. Coming up, I'm going to tell you what's on tap this weekend. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I absolutely loved today's show. I loved the interviews with Marshall Cho, the high school basketball coach at Lake Oswego High School. What kind of, what wisdom and what experience to talk about Jeremy Grant coaching him in high school and what he sees in kids, and oh, by the way, that burning question that every parent who's got like a sixth grader uh, has to uh, has to answer: How old should your kids be when they get a cell phone? Uh, the correct answer is as old as you can get away with. 
Uh, I thought uh, the coach had a really good point about kids that play sports having an opportunity to get a break and get away from their phones and, more importantly, get away from social media and the pressures of social media. And, you know, it used to be that I don't know what your experience was like when you got out of school as a kid. We used to get out at 3 o'clock. I know some schools now get out. At, my kids get out at, like, 210. I'm like, what kind of day is 210? But they start early. Anyway, we used to get out at 3 o'clock. And at about 3.05, school was in the rearview mirror. I wasn't texting with friends. There were no cell phones. I wasn't on Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or whatever kids are on, Twitter, whatever. Uh, there was none of that. Uh, my parents would pick me up. They would ask me how school was. And school was in the rearview mirror. I got a break from it. Whatever was going on at school stayed at school. And I went home, and if, and if I wanted to jump on the phone, and most likely I wouldn't, I could get on the phone, and I could use that rotary dial, and I could dial up my friends, and we could have a conversation about something, or, we'd, or I would just go outside and play. But more often than not, I had no communication with my friends after school. School, uh, the only way that school got home with me was in my backpack, my homework, or in my head. There was no way I was bringing home any of that school stuff. But kids in today's world, and think about this, just like a lot of us that started working from home during the pandemic or maybe continue to work from home or take work home or have a laptop and you open it up and you check your work email or you check your phone, you don't get a break from it. And I think it's damaging to your family unit anyway. We talk about it a lot in our household. But I think beyond that, I think real issue that that gets talked about less is the fact that kids don't get a break from school. They don't get a break from the social pressures. They don't get an escape. They don't get a respite from whatever the hell is going on at school. It's just constant, constant barrage of pressure and expectations and criticism and, you know, your, their friends texting them and they just don't get any peace. And I, you know, I think we're only beginning to figure out the damage of that or maybe, the depression that that can bring on and the, uh, you know, the overall effect on mental wellness that 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 uh, fosters. And so I thought it was a great point by the one of the coaches today to talk about the fact that if your kid is playing sports, it's one of the few times that that phone goes into a bag or it's on the floor in the gym or it's in a locker and kids are just out there competing and playing and learning and growing and doing something healthy that does not involve a phone being in their hands. Um, I worry. Like, you know, my kids come home from school. The younger kids are in elementary school. They get a break from school. But there will be a day in 6th, 7th, 8th grade where they go, hey, I need a phone. And guess what? School follows home, follows you home when you have a phone in your hand. All that pressure, all that social connection, some of it's good. Uh, don't at me. But a lot of it can be overwhelming and can be negative. On that note, I'm going to tell you what's on tap this weekend. We do it uh, every Friday. Now, it's time for What's on Tap and What's on TV at the Independent on the BFT. Well, I'm going to focus heavily on the Pac-12 Conference. Got a whole bunch of basketball games going on tomorrow and on Sunday. I'm going to start with UCLA. They are on top of the world right now, the number four team in the country. They will be taking on Cal. That is coming up tomorrow on the Pac-12 Networks. You can catch that game if you are a uh, 
a fan at 7.30. If you want to see Cal UCLA, you say I should run away with that one. Big one for Arizona. Also will be on ESPN2 at 5 o'clock as Colorado visiting Arizona. Arizona tripped last weekend against Stanford. See if they can get back on track. Utah is on the road, and they are at Arizona State, 3 p.m. on the Pac-12 Networks. Uh, for Duck fans, uh, you will not be able to see Dana Altman's team until Sunday. They'll be on FS1 on Sunday. They're playing at Washington State. Had a hiccup in overtime against Washington this week. Uh, Sunday, 4 o'clock, FS1. Must win for Dana Altman and the Ducks. Uh, for those of you who follow Oregon State, they are at Washington on Saturday. Pac-12 Network's 5 o'clock tip-off. That is what's on tap from the Pac-12 weekend. I'm not kidding you. A really disappointing performance this week as uh, Dana Altman's team lost against Washington. I could not believe that on Wednesday night. Uh, it was right when Joe Lenardi and everybody started talking about the Ducks being one of the last teams in. They lay an absolute egg uh, in overtime, really the last five minutes of the game. They were up five with five minutes to play at Washington, had a few bad possessions down the stretch, took some bad shots, uh, had some defensive lapses. They end up in overtime, and in the overtime period, uh, they just had it cave in on them a little bit, and you could just see the home court play an advantage there as the game was tight and Washington uh, was really not playing for any kind of postseason uh, win or anything, but just uh, just trying to get a W in a disappointing season. And they got Oregon in a puzzling defeat that Dana Altman's team just couldn't afford. It was just when I was looking at Oregon going, they're, they're healthy at the right time. They've got Infali Dante. They seem to be playing better. And then their schedule this week, they had Washington, Washington State this week. I thought, gosh, this this is just the right time for Oregon. Could they end up with a top-four seed? And they lose 72-71 on Wednesday in overtime at Washington. So if you're a Duck fan and you're hoping for Oregon to uh, get things together, it's got to start on Sunday. They play at Washington State on Sunday. That is an absolute must-win. Then they are at State uh, a week from Saturday, a week from tomorrow, and then uh, they will finish out the season with home games against Cal and Stanford. So a chance here. I think Oregon's got to win four straight here to get back into that conversation, but uh, they're going to have to do some work in the Pac-12 tournament as well. On the bright side, top four teams in the Pac-12 standings will get buys in Las Vegas, and Oregon is currently just sitting a game and a half out of that four spot. So, uh, you know, that's not out of the question. Can they catch USC? Can they uh, uh, end up at four? Uh, that becomes the question for Dana Altman's team. All right, uh, I want you to leave it tuned in here on 750 The Game. Peter Sampson and the Pulse is coming up. Peter's all stretched out. He's ready to go. Big weekend ahead. Uh, he's always got a lot on his mind, especially right in the opening segment. The Bald Face Truth is not here for a long time, just a good time. Get a podcast of this show. Make sure you subscribe. Also, I want everybody to have a great weekend. Stay safe out there, and uh, I appreciate that you all make this show part of your day.